Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Grimecast. I'm your host, as always, Nutchucks, and as with me, as always, the guy you drag along to say the words good so you improve, also known as Browbeat. That will never happen, sir. I refuse to improve my words. Let's consider it an asymptotical relationship. We'll always pursue it and never quite get there. Is that fair to say? Yeah, it's not symbiotic. I, I don't, you know. Asymptotic. Do you know what an asymptote is? Uh, Do you remember Algebra 2? I never had Algebra 2. I did Votech in high school, but... This explains many things. Indeed it does. It, it, I'll simply, uh, as I said, it, uh, it's, it, it's, it's a line and a curve, and the curve always gets closer to the line. Closer and closer. Real close. But it never crosses the line. It's like one of them uh, parallelograms, right? That's what we're talking about? If that's what you got to reach for, then sure, it can be a parallelogram, except for one of those lines ain't parallel. I gotcha. Every time I hear the, par- the word parallel, parallelogram, dear God, uh, I think of the Family Guy bit with that. Please summarize the Family Guy bit for the audience. So you you never you haven't seen that episode where Peter opens his own restaurant? I, I'm asking you to okay. paraphrase the bit in Nutchuck's terms. The I best way. I gotcha. Joe says he's going to invite all of his buddies to Peter's restaurant, and when they show up. They're all handicapped, and Joe looks, or Peter looks at Joe and says, Joe, what the hell are all these parallelograms doing here? This is a cool place. I can't have them here. And I just, I, that word will always stick. Instead of using the word paraplegic, he uses the word parallelograms. There you go. You succinctly explained the bit. Thank you very much. All right. So, the last time we were uh, recording and talking to each other for this lovely Primecast, prime uh, I asked you to watch a movie, A Silent Voice. And you have informed me that you have watched the movie. So now I'm highly excited to hear what you have to say about A Silent Voice, sir. So please, go ahead and tell me your synopsis and your slight review of uh, the movie A Silent Voice. Okay, we can lead in with that pretty simply. I wanted to ask you, do you want to ask me questions or have me free flow as I do? Free flow, and then I'll ask you questions along the way, because I think that's how we work the best. Because if I can ask you... well. Here, I'll start with this. What do you think of the situation the main character put himself in in this movie? Who's the main character? Shoya. No, I'm asking you, who's the main character? <laughs> I mean, this is going to be a who's on first. I see how this is. Because uh, we have a pivotal character that we spend the most of our time with in this film. And I'll speak about the direct impressions more and then the context a little bit later. Because you want to hear raw things first. Right. I think that there are no nobody's wrong in this movie in terms of their motivations. Characters are painted in such a way that you are more or less sympathetic to their experiences. However, upon consideration, basically there's a lot of human folly going around and people act based how they're compelled to act given what they know and what they feel. With their experience. So, you remember the names better than I do? Mm-hmm. I remember Ishida-san, naturally, was the family name of the main protag, if we want to call him that, as the... It's a character who we're shown as a glimpse at first, being of a certain age, let's say 17, and then he's shown to be younger, about 12-ish. So, by and large, 
the present day person is burdened with burdened with regret for what they have done in their past. It was established to be the sixth grade. And I, I take some issue with what's being shown us directly, but I very much understand that we're being metaphorical here. And the class, the school class, the sixth grade is having a new transfer student, and the transfer student has a disability or a malady. In this movie, the focus of the portrayal is a young girl, their age, sixth grade peer, who can't hear. She's deaf. I do believe the movie could have portrayed her as a parallelogram or a similar disability, but we need something that approaches a, a very important theme, which is, of course, communication. And our main character, Mr. Ishida, doesn't really know what to do with her. Everyone's focused on, oh, wow, she can't hear, she can't hear. And the classmates approach her as kids of that age do. And our guy is just sort of confused and lost and doubtful of himself, and he expresses his insecurities in the world by messing with stuff, pranking his friends, resting around. So when a uh, solution is offered, and that the deaf girl has a notebook that she would like people to write in as a means of medium and communication, he's, he's not having it. He's not buying it. He'll either write rude things in the notebook, he will prank her by spraying her with a water hose, he rejects the girls offers a friendship and then because at first you said bullying bullying i thought well that's not so bad then the serious stuff happens such as oh i'm going to remove your hearing aids young woman and i'm gonna just gonna throw them out the window why not who cares right and the movie spends about a quarter of its time showing us the sixth grade classroom events and by the end of those events our main protagonist's behavior gets challenged and questioned, and the consequence is that that girl leaves his life forever, as far as he knows. And we just flash forward by four or five years, and our protagonist is lonely. He's lost in his direction at life, still in school, working a part-time job, but there's a very strong implication that he's going to kill himself. And this movie has a... <laughs> I get the metaphor of being in water. I get it. But there is a firm fascination with falling off of bridges in this damn film. Yeah. But when it comes to his attempt to kill himself, the movie actually doesn't make it very clear if he goes through with it or not. The point is that he doesn't succeed. So whether he stepped onto the ledge and got back off or he threw himself down and then he got rescued, his life does not end. And his family takes him to task again, saying, this is dumb don't do this, be better, without really providing any kind of groundwork of what he ought to do. The majority of the movie, about two-thirds of the film, is a study in Mr. Ishida's attempts at personal reform, recontextualizing his relationships with the people around him, finding it very difficult to maintain, recover, or develop friendships, and basically struggling with alienation. And of course, to no great surprise, the woman reappears in his life. Let me pull up the character sheet because it's kind of rude to not acknowledge Shoka. what is basically also. Well, Shoko is her first name, and in Japan, we don't do that shit. Nishi, so, Nishimaya? Nishimiya. Nishimiya, excuse me. I, yeah. I don't speak Japanese, so I'm, I'm not good at pronouncing last names. Maybe, maybe someday you'll give it a go. And I'm being very general. We'll drill down, naturally. But there is 
there is consistent tension in how to approach one another between our main characters and all of the peripheral cast. And I accept that this is a another high school story in the high school era, even kind of appreciating that the flow of events goes through the second half of the school year, through the summer, and into, into the beginning stages of the following school year. There is merit to the balance within that. Excuse me. Yep. Oh, did you did you break gas? No, I sneezed. Oh, well, would start off. For sure, he's placebo. So, Shoko being deaf, and Shoya Ishida, the male character, being an asshole, at least being younger. And I mean, who hasn't done bad stuff when they're kids? But still, the point is, he's very regretful of the consequences of his actions, and he is driven to find the girl and learn enough sign language, Showa, to make amends at the very least. And kind of like, as you would take Alcoholics Anonymous, it's a selfish drive. It's to absolve the self, but he believes he can do some good with it, even though other forces in life consistently show that that might not work. And at about the halfway mark throughout the movie, you begin to see that there is this inexorable spiral between the two leads as their friends and family say, don't, don't, don't approach one another. You can't be together. A relationship does begin to form. And the consequence of their decisions and interactions consistently shows this clumsy, full of mistakes, but ultimately very human, deepening connection before we get to specifics. And the film resolves on a chapter that offers more. There's going to be more story. There's going to be continuation. There's going to be development. Maybe we get to see these people age and grow. It's hard to see, hard to say. But in terms of overall enjoyment, about the first two thirds were enjoyable to follow until trials and tribulations continue to stack for these characters. Uh, if you have a question at this point, you're welcome to ask it. Um, I, I do. What what is so clearly there? It is hinted at that Shoka has then about, well, I'd say almost at the halfway mark, I believe is where he meets her on the bridge and she tries to confess that she likes him, but because she's trying to speak it instead of sign it, he's like, oh, the moon. I found that a little cheesy and like he would have just been like, what do you mean? Instead of like asking her in sign language and he does it and I'm like, I am 90% sure most people like, I know you're not meeting the moon. Yeah, it's out and it's lovely, but come on. You, you know what she's hinting at. You're just not wanting to say it. And that, that kind of frustrated me. I wanted, I wanted your opinion on that scene specifically. This is a consequence of Japanisms. Did you watch this movie in English or in Japanese? I think we, we know what I watched it in, sir. English? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I watched it in Japanese with subtitles, naturally. Mm-hmm. I don't. I can't speak for the dub and how it's structured. Uh, localizing teams have to work fairly hard to not only convey sentiment but specific elements from Japanese to English. And as many negative things I have to say about English and losing nuance in its language, Japanese typically is 70% nuance. It's almost like you speak in tropes when you're using phrasing as opposed to specific terms. So from the classic joke that 
the direct statement of I love you is a relatively new invention in Japanese. We're talking middle of last century. Previously, you'd had to use a phrase to allude to confessing a feeling so directly. Japanese skirts around many things. That serves very well here because we have characters who ostensibly are speaking the same language, but there is a separation of understanding in between Shoko's inability to say things verbally or vocally, and the movie does draw attention to how society generally either ignores or lets her know that her manner of speaking verbally at all is highly off-putting because deaf people don't exactly know innately, or at least in a developed fashion, how to apply their vocal cords. They have no audio feedback to match the, match the pitch of others. And it's offered occasionally that there is a, a preference, a workaround, either through the notebook at first or sign language, shiowa, afterwards. And they'd formed a communicative relationship, Mr. Ishida and Ms. Nishimiya, that being Shoya and Shoko, by using sign language. It's been very effective. But in wanting to say, I love you out loud. Shoko is crossing a threshold very similar to switching from a family name, which is a polite, respectful, and distant version of addressing someone, to using someone's first name, which implies great familiarity and intimacy, which is a significant step. And although Mr. Ishida, Shoya, to the English speaker like Shoko and Shoya, is just very awkward to go back and forth from, so we'll try to stick to last names. He's not ready for that. He wants it, but he's not ready for whatever that is because he is thoroughly messed up by himself. Very much so. So that scene to me, I understand how you would see it awkward and cheesy in English. I see it as awkward and tasteful in Japanese. But also it's kind of a shame because it points to greater themes that I could address that the audience maybe isn't looking for. So I didn't mind it. I actually quite enjoyed it. And again, it happened... On a fucking bridge. I don't know if you know this, in this movie, bridges are deeply symbolic and involved of points of revelation or crossing states of understanding, perhaps. Bridges feature a lot, as does the theming that has been popularized long ago and is best seen in Blade Runner, the original, and the sequel, more or less. Uh, It features two things, Chucks. You're welcome to think about what this movie uh, focuses on quite frequently and let me know what those two things are as a theme so i'll, I'll, I'll give you a hint they're physical objects wait, 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 wait. like are you talking about the know, i'm starting to get confused here what what you're aiming for here i'm assuming the flowers when anytime there's flowers involved or flowers nearby something significant has happened or will happen along with the bridge and fish flowers Flowers feature, but this is a this is a two component answer. It's blank and blank. I can give you a further hint. Go ahead. The camera lingers on certain parts of the human anatomy frequently in this movie, almost constantly. Hands and face, I'm assuming. Very close. Hands and eyes. Okay. I was gonna say eyes, but I'm like, well, faces in general, because it 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 does linger on the face, but I get why it does it. It does it to convey a lot well, like when they're when she at the end of the movie when he gets out she that focuses really close like you said on her eyes and she's crying and everything and the hands because it's hurt because now how can she talk but she still is managing to talk to people and try to bridge gaps being 
Miss Nishibuya Shoko. Yes, Shoko. The camera also very, very frequently reframes the inclusion and the omission of eyes, and this is a, a long-running visually represented trope that uh, Japanese animation has used. Because if you if a character speaks and the camera focuses on their nose down and their eyes aren't shown, or their eyes are hidden under a fringe of their hair, for example, the absence of eyes typically shows a distant discordant, lost, or misguided perspective, or they don't mean what they say, or they're being cruel or willful, as a visual shorthand. Seeing the eyes and what angle they're from and what they're doing is meant to be something sincere and connective. Whether they're right or wrong, they mean that shit. And involving uh, hand language, gesture language, is well animated in this movie consistently as well. Uh, is kind of a self-inclusive element. You're going to see the hands because they're part of the conversation, not just a matter of gestures, because there are certain tropey gestures that Japanese animation will do to convey the mood or the intention of the character. And that's kind of... I, I regret I have to stand by what I guessed before I watched this movie, is that the dialogue written in the film is not up to task to discussing the themes and the subjects that it's engaging in. The dialogue is very transactional, conversational, gossipy much of the time. Very plain. It's up to the body language, the camera movement, showing us cutaways of the environment or thematic elements, a lot of tossing bread into water to feed the koi fish, to help flush out what we're supposed to be feeling, if we don't feel anything on our own, about the situation. There's a lot of time spent gazing about, which eyes, and not too much with your ears, even though the portrayal, the actual delivery of the lines got me to tear up a few times, get misty here and there, and maybe not at the big moment towards the last three quarter that you might guess. It was more of the other things where oh man, it's a shame it went this way because you see the frustration from everyone involved. There... I'll make a digression at this point and say before the movie ended, because Towards the last quarter, I was getting distracted since we have a lot of developments that are serialized. I find myself thinking this would actually be much better as a short series than a movie, than a single film. Because the runtime is at two hours, just, just a touch over two hours. But the first half can be a film on its own. You can flesh it out, but the events happen there. But we cut ahead from grade six to grade blank senior year junior year equivalent doesn't really matter but then further hints developments conflicts and resolutions occur with the characters that go beyond the three measure arc there's probably seven different twists in the film that are all consistent with people do and people do and naturally by looking at what this is this is an adaptation of a manga run it was published uh over one year in a magazine and further released i believe in seven different trades mm -hmm. That I read about. But it really does feel like the pace of how events develop and transpire very much reminds me the notion of uh, it being a series, it being a issue by issue, beat by beat, ongoing glimpse into these characters' lives to where you can certainly write more and create more that as time advances and then hop back to a meaningful moments in these characters' lives as flashbacks, because they're pivotal. And it really makes sense that you lived what you lived, and it was a static value, 
until you're forced to reflect upon it, and that reflection can change out your perspective. The closing shot of the film is our male protagonist, Mr. Shoya Ishida, standing in a public place as he's walking through. He's invited to be there. He wants to be there. And something clicks within his mind. He looks around at the mundane sight of people milling about their business, and he bursts into tears because it's, it's relief, it's permission, it's the feeling of validity, wanting to be where he is. And some sort of blurry image, a distant memory, res- gradually resolving in his mind. And it's... <laughs> I'll say that for the next bit, I suppose. But again, as a movie, as a movie-watching experience, that detracted my enjoyment. Because if you were to say this is a... Even if you break it up into four series, like four episodes, half an hour each, you're covering the same span of time. But the notion of chapter division is more helpful to annotate what the flow is. Because this movie could end a third of the way in, or two-thirds of the way in, or seven-eighths of the way in, or the way it ended. It's unclear. The structure and pace don't necessarily hint that they're building up towards uh, towards a specific result. So before we get more specific and spoilers, I suppose, uh, go ahead and crack off on observation, commentary, question, Mr. Chucks. I don't know. I, I actually, well, yes, I will. The ending to me, though, I enjoyed the ending because it finally made it, like you said, he, something finally clicked in his head that it's okay what happened. She's forgiven him and everything that he has done has been forgiven. So it's okay. And he can become himself again. And there are people there to be with him along the way that have helped him and that he hasn't realized because he was so worried that he did something so bad. So I, I like the ending and that he's realized it, it's almost like uh friendship that we talked about last episode. He realized the power of friendship uh, helped him and that people around him were the ones that actually helped him in the long run. Uh, if he collects more friends, his power level will, will increase, right? Yeah. I mean, and it, if he has the Saiyan handbook, if he almost dies and comes back, he gains twice as much power. Um, you said you said be himself again, and I disagree with that. Well, because he, in my understanding, he has never been himself. He has never lived in a fashion where he was unburdened by something. So his entire being was either oblivious or repressed with regret. So this step, this really big step for him, is the first time he really let into his heart and his mind that it's okay. It's going to be okay. It's not perfect, but you can step anywhere you want from here, even backwards if you want to, but more is available. You stop looking around saying, yep, I'm in a marketplace, and instead just get wisps of other people and humanity. It is a good moment. It's a good scene. It just doesn't feel conclusive to me in any particular way because to me many of these moments were already there throughout the story quietly this is just when we stop focus and draw gorgeous blobby anime tears pouring down a pretty boy's face yeah i mean they do do that i mean it hit me i guess you're right you i did say to be himself again like you said he was never himself um he got his problem was being bullied after he did what he did and so he was trying to figure out how he could make amends and then it took her to show him that it was okay and that everything is fine but she was blaming herself for what happened 
And okay. he, he realized that, okay, now I'm fine. I, everything has been forgiven and I can go on and be better. And like you, I, if there, we did discuss this slightly that, uh, I feel like they're, they could have extended on later on, like what happened after this, with the, uh, scene, cause it's at a high school festival and he just got out of the hospital because he had to save, uh, Nishiyama's life from jumping off her apartment balcony. We'll discuss that a little more too. Yeah. Yes, but he tried to save a person and he got hurt himself. Yep, and he was in a coma and then he came back and then everybody showed him like, oh, we do care. We care about you. We tried things. We grew, his buddy grew a mustache. The one girl that was saying that she did nothing wrong, even though you can see that she bullied her slightly or laughed at her behind her back. Oh, uh, fucking wonderfully pathetic of a gesture. Hey, dude, yeah. I heard you weren't doing so well. So I did the ice bucket challenge so you get better. I mean, don't get me wrong. Like he, but those are things that click to him. Like, oh shit, people do care about me, and it's well, it, no, no, yeah. The gestures effect makes sense, but really, if you if you're being <laughs> not feeling but super pragmatic, going, wow, what a dog shit gesture. Thanks a lot, buddy. <laughs> Truly, I would not have pulled through if it weren't for that Hitler mustache you did there, <laughs> or her. We were trying to build a thousand. I don't know how it is it, the Japanese translation, well, no. but in the English translation, it, it's uh, origami. She's like, oh, we try to make you a thousand origamis, but we failed. And it's like, oh, yeah. okay. That that's a good detail, because you bring it up, and that that's like kind of skipping to the end. And that's okay. Uh, you know the idea behind that gesture? No, I don't know any. Uh, origami has never been my thing, so I'm not 100 percent sure what that gesture okay. is. If you solicit, okay, th the analog is spirit bomb. If either a group of people or one person makes a thousand origami cranes, or you get a thousand people to make one, and you bring them together. You get a wish. That's the old legend, right? Either oh. you put in supreme effort and will to make something miraculous happen, or you collect the will of those that can help, and you get to a thousand, and then maybe you can overcome a great challenge slash get a wish. So in context, our friend is in the hospital. We big bad care about him. Let's try. Damn it. We got to 678. We fucked up. But outside of the idea that you get a magic wish... The representation that you got past five cranes that enough people cared and did enough work to put together a partial wish cloth wreath, that already means a huge amount. Yeah. But the people that are doing the work to help encourage their friend or represent their positive emotions or will towards them, they feel like they failed because the objective was hit this milestone. But of course, the film itself is deeply humanist, which the themes I appreciate by far. The notion is, oh, of course you couldn't fulfill your objective because you set it in such a rigid way that it is it is a goal you're never supposed to hit, like you're not talking funny. It's an asymptotical relationship. You won't ever get there, but you should try because along the way, not only will you create something that is a gesture showing your intent, but you'll develop an ability perhaps or make people, etc. It's it's about the comedy of life through tragedy, basically. But um, let me pause it here for a sec. Okay. And bring up a couple of things. Mm-hmm. Ooh, excuse me. Isn't it a shame that Shoko isn't ugly? No. Why not? I mean, even if she was, I, I still, I don't think it matters if she's ugly or attractive in the film. I think it does. Because does? what if Shoko looked like Nagatsuka, the friend who everyone calls Turd Head? You talk. 
Hold on a minute. There's no one called Turdhead when I'm watching it. So that's the, this is the problem when I watch something in English and you watch something in Japanese. It's like, wait a minute. Okay. What do they call the friend who is short and had green hair? The mustache kid. What do they call him there? Uh, let's see here. Do, 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 do. I can't remember. I haven't watched it in a while. So let me. But well, there wasn't like a mean nickname everyone called him. Mm -mm. Did they settle for sure? Okay. Well, guess what? In Japanese, Turdhead. <laughs> Why are you friends with Turdhead? What the hell? <laughs> yeah, that, that was the thing. So maybe you didn't watch the petty caddy version. Uh, maybe recommend it if you want to rewatch it, because again, context matters a whole lot. And I went for the closest native expression. And people, it, it ain't sanitized. People are rude to each other. But again, the point stands that our protagonist, Mr. Ishida, is a kid who is not necessarily super good looking, but he's got the protagonist hair. And he's actually pretty tall for his demographic. So he kind of has that going for him in terms of I have physical supremacy for a time, but when he falls into his self-depression, uh, it doesn't really matter. All, whatever benefits he has for, through physical appearance are completely lost on him. And it is in his head more so than anything else. But the notion is the world had shut itself to him. And we'll talk about that a little bit too. Uh, Shoko, Miss Nishimiya, she has pleasant-looking haircut. She has soft features, lovable doe eyes. She is meant to look vulnerable and appealing, not necessarily in like a dirty way, but it's a, it's a character that's pretty easy on the eyes, and I think that's like a necessary conceit because, like I mentioned, being deaf is a disability for sure, but it could be translated for any other communication-inhibiting disability. Her being blind could have been an interesting story. She could speak, but she couldn't see the world. But we're here to discuss how difficult it is to get your feelings or your point across to somebody else. Uh, if she had no arms, et cetera, et cetera. Which begs the question, why do they even bring in a deaf kid into a general population? Why isn't there a separate classroom? I'm sure in an urban environment, there's enough kids that are fucked up that could be pulled together into the not-normies group. I know that's cruel to say, but it's almost more cruel to say, yeah, girl, it's going to be hard. Like, all the way through, people are going to point, stare, laugh, make fun of you, um, steal your hearing aids, throw that shit out. It's just going to be battle around. But you can make it. It's going to toughen you up. It'll, it'll, it will for sure make you not want to kill yourself later. That's one of those interactive conceits that the, the story writer wanted to get across, but I feel went a little bit clumsy with. The story doesn't necessarily fall apart if you change that, but it seems like an unnecessarily awkward situation. I get like it. If it if it was a classroom full of hyenas and the new arrival was festooned with lamb chops, I mean, the fuck do you expect to happen here? <laughs> so that, that, that's, that's one thing where to soften the blow of life as hard, let's make her attractive. And uh, to the credit of the writers, the, uh, the, the short chubby friend who basically at least visually represents clearly looking different, and that could be shorthand for whatever, uh, aesthetics are not his appeal, that he's got heart and he's looking for a connection to make, and he is all too eager to please someone else to escape his own loneliness. And he becomes like the, the wingman to our protagonist, and I can, I can work with that. Here's a point I want to really stress, because I feel that it ties into unspoken but intensely prevalent politics. Chucks. Mm -hmm. Why are there no dads in this movie? There's a dad in the movie. 
a token cameo by token guy. <laughs> I was waiting for you to have, talk about him. Just... The, well, because the question hangs over the arrangement. Mr. Ishida, our kid, Shoya, lives with... At first, it's unclear if it's his mom or his sister, and they're clear to correct that. I don't know about English, but in Japanese, it takes a hot minute to figure that out because we're shown that this is a young woman who's a stylist. Then there's another young girl in the picture, and that girl is noticeably browner than everybody else, and nobody's talking about it. And there's a throwaway line like, oh, it's your sister's daughter. Okay, so your mom and his son, where's sister? And you never see the sister's face, ever, ever, at least in the film. Maybe in manga she gets more screen time, but the idea is here. That's just another circumstance our guy has to deal with. And maybe this is outmoded thinking, Maybe the current conversation is family norms don't matter, gender norms don't matter, just, just everyone should love everyone else. Cool. Then why is this young lad growing up fucked up and bullying everyone around him until the world claps back and says, we let you step into the pit, and now we're going to bury you in it? Like, if, if there were a positive, somewhat constructive fatherly influence... Would they not take some of the burdens off the mom, and then maybe the kid wouldn't have to work part-time during school to help make ends meet and just be a general scumbag? Because if if the plot in the sixth grade didn't show us indulgently that this kid is being a shit, and he's not getting punished for it at all, until it gets serious to a financial level where the mom of the deaf girl has to call the school and say, I can't afford more hearing aids. Somebody out there is causing me serious financial struggle. And then a senior director of the school, maybe the principal has to come in and say, we have been hearing some reports of things happening here. And then kids look around like, oh no, are we going to rat him out? Are we not going to rat him out? And then the teacher, who's been wearing sweats this whole time, male teacher, by the way, fairly young looking, but super hands off. So it's hard to tell until the turn happens whether he doesn't notice or he doesn't give a shit or if he's doing a thing. The teacher calls out our protagonist really hard, saying, everyone knows it's you. Stand up and face it. Oh, yes, sir. So authority is craved by the kid. Authority is missing in his life. And when authority comes calling, it's to say, uh, apparently, <laughs> what was the phrase he said? Uh, duty during something something. It's a charge that the kid doesn't even didn't no. realize he was incurring for you're criminal pursuance. Yeah, you're talking about what I told you earlier, the duty upon yeah, yeah. striking? There you go, duty upon striking. He goes, what the fuck does that mean? And what that means is your life is ruined now. Everyone's gonna flee and turn away from you because they're equally as complicit as you are. Maybe you were more intense. They were part of it, but now they're gonna skimper away and leave you out on your own, on your own with your ass out. And then maybe you'll try to drown yourself, I guess, question mark. But basically, the, the film and the arc in the manga allows the protagonist to dig his own grave, if you will. With one foot in it for the rest of the story until his turnabout happens. Uh, <laughs> manic depression is something I can really get behind in a story. I don't know if you know that. But it was, it was portrayed better visually and situationally than it was through dialogue or relation. Even though the kids were written relatively well. Uh, two more things to add to that because this is how I saw the movie. This is not really a kid's story. It's not really a story about kids in a school. I think pretty much every dynamic of interaction is written in a way that adults can easily relate to. 
However, what that speaks to is most adults finish developing by sixth grade. Not cognitively, but behaviorally, that's just how they're going to act for most of their life until their life, if their life, gives them enough trauma to change their way. Because when we get to see former classmates who turned and rejected the protagonist reappear in his life, they're behaving pretty much the exact same way that they were in sixth grade, personality-wise, which is curious. And also, they're working shitty, menial jobs. Yeah, they're still in school. Maybe they're just hustling on the side. But that's why I think it's portraying adulthood and not childhood. Because people who figured, oh, you know, I'm handsome, I'm attractive, I've got friends. Life is solved. They end up in places they don't like, that they resent. And in the case of one character especially, we'll, we'll discuss, I think, um, they see their lack of success as being directly traceable to some shit that happened when they were a kid. And then blaming everything on that thing. If you hadn't shown up and did the thing you did, I would be happier. Which oh. is incredibly tone deaf and not being able to face your own problems. You're, you're talking about the Ferris wheel, right? Mm. Before, during, and after the Ferris wheel, yes. So the, that character. Uh, that character's being shit the whole time. Yeah. So her and she's thing... not wrong. She's not wrong. She's not a villain. That's just the perspective she's stuck with. So in the English version, they say he would be happier. None of this is all your fault. He would have been happier. Everything would have been fine. Everyone would have been happy. Yeah. And then same here. But again, that's just a mouthpiece for a particular perspective. Mm-hmm. That's a mouthpiece for frustration and zero accountability. And the character, the reason I say that she's not completely wrong, because she does show she shows both highly manipulative and direct behavior to trick people into situations that are advantageous to her as she sees it and simultaneously the character is insightful in calling people out on acting evasive and sneaky and low because that's what that character operates on that basis of being a snake the basis of being a trickster and an exploiter and a schemer but that's not a completely condemnable set of skills or even values because it gets you places it does allow something to happen and you decide what to do with that kind of power set I feel. What do you think? No, I, I get it. You are, you're 100% right with her. Um, she has found a way to get what she needs, and by doing it, she makes makes her look like an ass and kind of the villain of the story, but it's really not. I get her point, like you said. like She is trying to do something to get her way, and if it isn't her way, she gets butthurt about it because I believe they meet her. She's working at a a cat cafe, I think is what it's called. Well, it's it's made ambiguous at first. She's handing out slips with cat ears and a tail on a corner. And uh, we're not going to dip into the age of consent of Japan at this point. But the notion is, it's kind of ambiguous as to what the coupon is for. It's just a meow meow parlor, and it's 30% off. And then when our protagonist takes the flyer, and they do the whole thing where the two former childhood friends pretend they don't recognize one another. Mm-hmm. The main character is mulling it over in the classroom later, and then his new friend, Turdhead, comes along and goes, Wow! He freaks out at the coupon, like, Wow, we're going to score some Wicked Slash tonight, right? And they go to pursue the lead, and it's a cat cafe. And at least in, in Japanese, it said, Is this what you expected? Because, you know, I mean, of course it is. Like, what did you think it was going to be? A love hotel? Which, to be fair, Turdhead did bring up, as they were going to go on the subway to go find one of the other classmates later on in the story, and our character says, oh, man, I'm too broke for the subway. His friend hands out a stack of cash. I don't know if you remember what the English said. In Japanese, it was said, well, by the time you figure in snacks and taxi and love hotel, you know, it's going to add up. He doesn't say that. 
Okay. Well, again, you got the sanitized version then. Yeah. I'm going to have to watch it in Japanese. Uh, you missed out, man. I, I, I think. I know I missed the words spoken in English, but there's just little cultural things you got to smooth over because if you connect the words prostitution and high school kids, that's a big problem in America. Whereas in Japan, who this movie is for, ostensibly, kids got to fuck. You know? At home with their siblings or with friends or their animals or whatever. Kids got to fuck. Hopefully they find the best way to do that. Besides, the population rates are way down, so go find one another and do what you got to do. <laughs> it's very crassly said, but those are sentiments that are very hard to express in an American Western culture because we have our own baggage. Japan has its baggage. Every country that develops its insular culture has baggage that's really difficult to explain to somebody else. Yeah. Um, still. Uh, go ahead. Yeah. No, 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 no. I'm still trying to wrap my head around that he's called Turdhead in that one. It's uh repeatedly. <laughs> Tomo Tomohiro is his name. By his last name or his family name? Um, it, that's all it's given me in here. It's Tomohiro. Agatsuka. Agatsuka. Ah, Agatsuka. That's right. That's what he calls him the whole time. Because again, Kind of like you would in Russian, actually. Well, I, I guess if you're if you're coworkers in Russian, you would use the first and middle name as a polite address. But if it's a formal address, you would use the last name. Kind of like Mr. Fingelstein, as opposed to Ernie. So there's a very strong theme that became apparent to me immediately and kind of faded towards the end of the movie, which is, again, where you have constant relationship dynamic interactions between the character cast we've established because there's a point in the middle where our protagonist is so desperately isolated it it is a, <laughs> actually it's a visual representation of what it looks like to be cancelled in today's culture but the notion is everyone at Ishida's school that he can see from his eyes from his perspective has these obstructive blue tilted X markers over their face. These people are living their lives and existing, but each of feels so isolated from them that basically there's no way to establish a connection. He's living miserably around people who he he notices them and he is convinced they don't notice him. Or if they talk about him or or out him because somebody does a viral post online that features the kid, which I don't know how English handled this, but there's a moment where he is seen jumping over the railing of a bridge where there appears to be a law that you can't jump off that bridge into the shallow Koi Canal. Not because it's dangerous, because it's just disrespectful. It's illegal. And then that's what gets him suspended from school, because somebody leaks that image to the school populace that goes, ooh, is this you? And then, whoops, fucked. What do they say in English for that? They they essentially like, oh my god, can you believe that he jumped off? Because he's eating lunch, I believe, when all of a sudden he finds the video, and it's Shoya's sister that posted it, because she takes the photo, and she's He's trying to protect her. She's trying to protect her sister. Uh, and he's trying to make a bend, so he bumps into her. And I, the weird the weird scene between... Uh, Sho, uh, sh- excuse me. Not Shoya's sister. Shoko's sister. Shoya Turdhead now, because I, I will never get that in my head. Uh, show up to the room to talk to Shoya, or Shoko. And her younger sister pops out and is like, You can't talk to her. And Turdhead goes... I didn't know she was into younger guys. Well, I'm sorry. Like he, you know, I was just 
you know, wanted to talk to her and see how she's doing. He's like, no, no one's do, no one should talk to her, blah, 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 blah. And that's how the conversation starts. So she's trying to protect Shoko from getting hurt because she knows what happened in the past. But in, so what she does is she uh, plants the photo online to get him in trouble to leave her alone. And it, it's, it's not, I, I like it. Like she's trying to be good, but at the same time, he's trying to make amends. Um, is is Yuzuru coded as female immediately in the English dub? No, she's. It's like oh, I because they like I didn't know Shoko was into younger guys because she's. I think she's like twelve. She's a lot younger than Shoko. And it uh, was it was a low vocal register in the Japanese voice actor, so it was sufficiently ambiguous. I picked up on oh, the, this is a girl, but it's portraying a boy, which is interesting. Even though, because you know, like the clothes are sweats and there's sneakers and nothing's giving away, it, it's ambiguous on purpose and it takes a few scenes, maybe an issue of the manga to realize, no, you dummy, that's that's not Shoko's boyfriend, that's her sister, and it's meant to be a reveal. I'm just curious how the English voice actor, uh, who is apparently Kristen Sullivan, how yeah. she portrayed the sister. She so until you find out, you could assume that it's a young boy because so many female actors do young male voices. So you're just like, you don't, you, it wouldn't, it doesn't leave it up to like, you have to wait until it's told. Now, could you figure it out? Yeah. I kind of assumed I'm like, I don't think Shoko's dating anybody in this. Cause this is, I felt like they're going to make this into a love story. And I was technically somewhat right. Um, so I'm like, wait a minute. Like she's got to be someone in the class who knows what's going on or what happened. And then it's essentially like, Oh, that's my sister. And he's like, Oh shit. Because but, even Turdhead goes, oh shit, the next morning. And he's like, oh my god, what are you doing? You're here to pick a fight or something? And she's, it's like, that's a girl. And he's like, oh, oh fuck, my bad. Well, the way the visual cue is read. Uh, I don't think it was a fight in my sub slash dub. Uh, but the friend of Ishida takes who we suspect to be Shoko's boyfriend around the shoulders. Like, hey, buddy, buddy, what's up with you? Then the line is dropped. Oh, don't worry. That's actually Shoko's sister. And the next clip away that we get back to that pair, Turdhead is across the street, well away from her, going, oh, I knew that. That was cool. That was cool. Saying, I didn't mean to be creepy, implicitly. But basically, we're looking at a reverse Goku situation here, where the voice actress is able to, I guess, maybe sound boyish enough. Yeah. We're first to see her being low register. Well, the point I wanted to make, is inextricably watching every interaction and dynamic within this film, I thought to myself, power is the theme here. Power is the pivotal element of everyone involved in their story, the public story, and the uh, interactions with those around them. Because it's a nebulous word to say, but the power dynamics are, when, when our protagonist... Shoyishida is being a shit to those around him. He feels powerless in his family's arrangement because, again, dad's not in the picture. We're not told in this portrayal what's going on. Mom's struggling, so he's going to act out and exert his influence over other people. And he does this until he's challenged in some other way. If that power is taken away from him by the body of those around him, suddenly he lost public approval and permission. So now he feels power less. Now he's withdrawn, he's within himself, and he can't find any way to express a positive emotion or reconcile whatever sins he feels he's portrayed. 
So his path leads him to self-destruction because this way he can exert power over the forces that prey upon him. It's the wrong decision, but he thinks, if I can end my life, there's at least some measure of control. In communication, in saying, I don't want to use your shitty fucking notebook, get that out of my face, he's refusing ability or, or necessity to communicate with somebody else on a format he doesn't approve of. So now it's an arm wrestling match. I will not bow to your needs, nor will you accede to mine, so I will exert influence in this way. I just, to me at least, wherever the camera lingered and what they wanted to show us in these characters' lives, as well as where they are in present day, that was constantly a balancing act of who's got the upper hand in any one situation, because that's how people interact with each other in a normal-ish way. And I think pretty much anybody who is shown to be blunt or dumb or basic in this film is just meant to be having a common experience of the average person that just doesn't notice. It never occurs to them to even be bothered with this shit or whatever story they have in their mind just never finds the outside to shine through. Because Ishida looks normal enough, but he's going down the delinquent path almost because his hell is so very personal. And it takes us most of the movie to see that Nishimiya Shoko, the deaf girl, is also having very similar issues, except for hers are more visible to the outside because she can't hear. Whatever she can't do is obvious to those who try to interact with her. And again, I said, she looks attractive, meaning people aren't repulsed by her immediately. Then she starts to sing karaoke, and you might get a little bit of a complication. She can't say anything, so it's either a sign language or notebook or a solution we haven't found yet. Whereas our guy seemingly is well-adjusted, but he's disabled on the inside. He, he just can't work through the issues that he's having. Which, if that's the context in which you watch the film, like truly, this is meant to be a gradient allegory between private and public nightmares. By the time he's at the end of this film and he is weeping, it is far more intelligible and appreciable because that is showing a turnover. He gains what I'll again call power over himself enough that he can pursue the next stage of his development if he chooses to do so. What do you think? That probably just hit it on the head the best right there. Uh, everything you just described, like he is disabled on the inside um, by being by him shutting himself off uh, because when he started picking on her and then essentially the class got called out, by them picking on him, he's just like, well, I, I got to control something, so I might as well just shut everything off because everything he did to her, they started doing to him. And he essentially got in trouble and he saw his mom losing money. So now it's affecting his life. So he's like, I got to have control of something. And then, like you said, he tries killing himself at the beginning of the film. Um, the very beginning of the film is him as an adult trying to kill himself and then it not working. Then it flashes back on why he's trying to kill himself. Well, yeah. you don't really you don't really get a why. That why takes a while to really simmer down. Because not a lot of people try to kill themselves because they were a bully when they were a kid. Oh no, I was a shit kid. I'll just kill myself. Because people, from our protagonist's perspective, people are meant to develop and grow, and that we're cheering him on and being very patient as Mr. Ishida gradually grows as a person. Which is an interesting counterpoint to even Shoko, who says later on, I never changed. And then his classmates, like the girl with the purple eyes, his name I forget at the moment, who he meets at the Meow Meow Cafe and tries to get in touch with to reconcile his past, uh, she finds him a little bit later on and tries to hit, uh, hit him 
hit, excuse me, hit on him. You're like, hey, how you doing, boo? Remember all that time that we spent together and I always wanted to touch your peen and never did? Can we do that now? Implicitly. And Ishida detects that, oh, she's tried to take influence over me and she's acting in a fashion I don't appreciate, so I deny your claim to solicit me and I'm going to instead uh, go talk to Shoko because I'm here for her. To which the girl takes deep exception and goes to fuck with Shoko to assert herself. I will not be denied. No, I'm gonna rip out your 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 hearing aid and mess mess with you because that way that way I feel good about myself until later when I cry into my pillow. But for now, fuck you. Yeah. It's the constant dynamics. But Shoko is suicidal and has been the entire time. And her evading. Uh, the necessary critical point of growth and reflection is being polite to everyone, minimizing every conflict, accepting the bad shit thrown at her, which on its own is not a bad thing. But it all results into a person who's just bottling everything on the inside. Shoko lives with her mother and her grandmother and her little sister. And these kind of, I'm going to say broken families, uh, these kind of broken families will interact later on in the movie because the kids have a conflict, but then the conflict reaches their parents. So now, speaking of power, uh, Ishida's mother has to humble herself before Shoko's mother because Shoko's mother is taking a financial burden of replacing a bunch of hearing devices, which can't necessarily be super cheap. And that's a serious real-life inconvenience. The kids are fucking around. The adults are having to pay for it. But then later on, much, much later on, when Shoko has an episode where she's having a good time with Ishida and they're watching fireworks she can feel the fireworks of the cup and the, the, the fluid in her hands, the drink and she has a serene moment where everything is going well and she excuses herself to go home and then Ishida follows her only to see that Shoko is going to throw herself off the balcony because in Shoko's mind this is about as good as it's ever going to get it, it's all shit from here, and I'm broken, and nobody wants me, but I got a really good moment to go out on. Plus, there's fireworks everywhere. In that moment, Ishida dashes across the room, clumsily knocking things over, but he's panicked because he doesn't want this to happen. <laughs> because how dare you steal my thunder? That was my idea. I was going to throw myself off. And the moment where he is able to... I didn't know which way it was going to go, honestly. There were a few different paths how this could resolve because the sad mongering and the tension in the story needed a release. So I could see him being just too late to grab her and she would have fallen and died and gotten what she wanted, actually. But then Ishida catches Shogo by the wrist. And Ishida, being long and lanky, isn't all that strong. So as visuals flash in his mind, resolving past memories and sins, he's he's gritting his teeth, he's asking for whatever power. I don't know if he said God in English or not, but he's he saying whatever, whatever God there is, uh, let me let me make this one thing right. This here's something I can do, and then I'll be happy. And in a good move, honestly, for a quasi-realistic story, he holds onto her long enough for her to find leverage on the balcony, and then he himself dips over the edge. And again, it could have gone a number of ways because the camera was firmly centered on the concrete below from his perspective. But there happened to be a creek nearby, just just four feet over. That's all it was. That's all it took. Uh, he fell into the water. He was bleeding. Not sure why. They made yeah. that a detail to show that he's wounded. From, uh, but I don't mean to cut you off. He's bleeding from the stomach 
which makes no fucking sense. He hits the water. It doesn't show that there's any gravel. It's all grass underneath. What the hell did he hit hard enough to poke out and protrude a rib or something to bleed that bad? Well, I'll tell you what he hit. You know what it was? What? It was all the glass stuff on the table you knocked over. What was it? It's not explicit, but he slammed that table and the camera lingered long enough to show that he didn't dodge out of the way. He ran full force into it, stuff toppled over, and you heard glass breaking. Hmm. The camera did not linger on, oh no, now I'm cut! And that would have been like a really cheap thing to do. And he pressed his body up against the railing. We never saw the angle from the other side. So I firmly believe that it's either a tear or a scrape from the ledge, which I doubt, or it was him basically landing on a torn plate, but with adrenaline and such, you just wouldn't have known that's happening. But you're right, it's, it's a, in the moment, it's kind of an ambiguous wound, but it's there to show us that it's, this is real, this is a problem. Even though, from what they showed us previously, I was thinking back to the Animatrix, you know, 20 years ago. There was a segment with Mr. Popper, who, as an aside, is a kid who doesn't fit well at school. And the story here is that he is meant to be awoken from the Matrix. Uh, and when the agents of the Matrix detect that that's going to happen, they invade the school to stop him. So using impressive teenager delinquent skateboarding skills, our character has to escape the agents in some fashion. He gets his way to the school roof, and he throws himself off the roof, uh, barely avoiding a fence that would have gored him. And then we don't see this, but he strikes the pavement. But in the moment before his body landed, he actually woke himself up from the Matrix, which is a supreme act of will no human has done before, apparently. And it's a tiny little side story. You see this character in the two sequels to the original film. But the falling off a balcony with a camera shot just deeply reminded me of that particular animo sequence. And it's not cheap, but it's also maybe the least tragic thing that could have happened. Now, I will tell you, in the English version, he so when he's grabbing onto her, so he catches her wrist. He's like, God, let me, you know, let me do this one good act and then I'll be happy. You know, Shoko, I'm sorry for everything. And then Riley's like, Shoko, I have something to tell you. I, and he just, then he falls. So he's essentially going to be like, he doesn't say it, but in his head, like, he's trying to be like, she's the one person I care about for the love of God. Just let, make her be okay and let me get her up. And then it's like, Shoko, I, ah. it's like, oh, damn. But I'm, I'm not sure he said anything in this one. Yeah. So let me let me ask you about this because it deals with this. So uh, Giddy, I think her name is Miyoko. Uh, the girl that wants to get in his pants, but then he rejects. Purple eyes. Purple eyes. We'll go with purple eyes here. So that way everybody can feel kind of confused like we are. Um, Please go watch the movie with turd head and purple eyes. <laughs> and Shoko Ishida. God, how is that not a movie? Turn eyes, purple eyes, Shoko and Yoshida. <laughs> um, but essentially, she tries to do the same thing Shoko's doing to get his attention. Like, look, I can reconnect you with friends. Here's your old buddy from school. And he's like, I told you not to fucking do this, purple eyes. I didn't want to meet him. Why the fuck did you do this? Interesting. Is that almost verbatim to what you heard? Essentially, in the thing, he goes, look, I told you not to do this. I don't, I don't want to talk to him. And Shoya, Mr. Ishida, is like, he can hear it, and he's just like, oh, fuck. Because he, he gets the food that he wants, and he looks up, and he sees who it is. And she's like, hey, look, it's your old buddy. And he's like, 
oh dear god like that was his bully and but it was also his friend before time before he screwed with uh shoko oh it was not a bully and i am thoroughly impressed at the fucking hand holding the dub has to do because here's what happens in the japanese as translated there's a lot of implication mm-hmm. the implication is purple eyes says hey ishida i'm gonna get some takoyaki balls come with me called. and then without much commentary they approach the stand they place the order and she grabs hers and walks away and the server says here's your order sir and Ishida picks up the order and then the server says you should really mind your own business then the camera pans up to show blonde kid with a flashback to say that's that blonde kid and that really unnerves our character so I feel like the English is really hand-holding, thinking, well, the audience is going to connect to anything. What's going on? At the same time, the Japanese phrase of mind your own business is like a well-worn trope of a highly contextual phrase that alludes to unfinished business that you should be able to put together yourself. But it would be too abstract, I think, for the American crowd. Yeah, because so they, they he's, he essentially tells Purple Eyes, like, I told you not to do this. I don't know. No, no, no. He's not talking to Purple Eyes in this oh, one. Oh, yeah. He's, he's talking to Ishida. Yeah, I figured on that one. Once you said that, I'm like, oh, he's talking to Ishida in this one. But and that's he... that's a that's a way different vibe. That is a completely different vibe. Oh, it is. Hearing that and then watching the film in English, you're just like, oh, damn. Um, so, re- recommend rewatch later on, basically, to say, did I even fucking see this movie? What is this? But what happens at the end, she's, uh, Purple Eyes tells him, like, hey, it was... Uh, the kid from the Taki, uh, whatever the Tokyoki balls. Yeah. Was, yeah, it's him. It's your old buddy. He he and your old friends went in the river and saved your ass. And it's they quickly glimpsed to them on the bridge, sopping wet, and just just a flash. And I'm, I thought his character would be more influential, but well, eh. again, that was never said out loud in the Japanese. You see him among the people on the street. Unless I missed it, and I may have glanced away one moment, but they never said, "Hey, it's your old friend." Instead, it's just this, it's subtextually saying a person you used to know who has no business in your life anymore came through in a moment by sheer chance. He wasn't stalking you. He was just around for that to happen because these kids are living in the same city. They haven't moved away yet. So that's what makes this possible for them to just awkwardly reunite or to enter each other's lives again. Because as adults, there's almost no chance they would ever reconnect or do anything else physically. Yeah, uh, so I thought I, I I liked that they had purple eyes in the English version trying to do what Shoko's doing. Like, look, I can do the same as her. I'm just as good as her. And essentially, it's like, mm, you fucked up there, princess. Like that that uh, that <laughs> you you didn't you your plan did not succeed like Shoko's was doing. Mm, do you bad. think? Do you think she succeeded? Did purple eyes succeed with the Ferris wheel? No, she failed. How? Well, well, she succeeded with uh, Shoko by smacking the shit out of her and telling her it's all your fault and quit apologizing. Not everything's about you. And so I think she got her point across on that end by uh, getting the baby powder out and pimp slapping the shit out of her. Just yeah, hold, per- hold, hold on a second. And let me just pour this baby powder out. Bah! Bitch, it ain't about you. Yeah, Purple Eyes succeeded in driving Shoko to kill herself. Yeah. Perfect. So, But at the same time, we can see that as a cruel act. And we can see that as an antagonistic gesture and that Purple Eyes is the villain. At the same time, Purple Eyes is betraying 
her weaknesses and securities and issues because she's not happy where she is either. And basically, few people here are. The ones who appear well-adjusted might just not be talking about what's happening. Even, um, unfortunately, Redhead Kid, who has a minor role as a tag-along because when Ishida is discovering that he's not as isolated as he thinks he is, uh, again, they come to a bridge, and there is a pivotal moment where Ishida feels deeply insecure and betrayed, like everything is a farce, he's an asshole, he's a failure, and everybody who goes to cheer him up, he just viciously calls them out on whatever their flaw is, and the people feel their tummies get really upset, like, oh, you suck, you're right, I always run away, and everyone just leaves him outside of Shoko. Yeah. They do that in that one. So the 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 redhead guy's name is Satoshi Mishiba. Uh, so in the English version, essentially the little blonde hair girl has a crust on Satoshi, but she's like, "Hey, Satoshi said he thinks you might be a cool person. He wants to know if you want to hang out." And so it's he's like, "Wait a minute, what the fuck?" And in the English version, when that bridge scene happens, he walks up to him and goes like, "Hey, man." He's like, "Just leave me alone." He's like. I just fuck off essentially. And he's like, man, I thought we were friends. And he walked away. He's like, that's not cool. I thought we were friends. And it's like, damn. Satoshi says, you shouldn't tell people things so directly. You don't have to be right so loud. And then Ishida is right some more in his face. Yeah. Slumped over. So essentially it was Satoshi saying like, hey, look, it's another thing for English people to be like, hey, I thought we were friends, man. Like I was right. You were a cool person, but this is like ridiculous. And Turdhead, in the English version, tells him, Hey, man, I know you don't mean it. We're friends. I'm just going to let you have some time to cool off. I don't know what he says in the Japanese version. I don't know if he's just like, shut up, Turdhead, and then tells him to fuck off. But he doesn't say anything to Turdhead, and Turdhead walks off and is upset. Wait, and- he does? Oh, my God, really? Shida says nothing to Turdhead? He-, he says something at the beginning, but when Turdhead tells him, Hey, man, like... Like, I know you don't mean anything that you're saying, so I'm just going to leave you hot, alone. He just doesn't say anything. Hot damn. Hot damn. Well, <laughs> he, the, the character's head is buried in his knees, so you never see the mouth move. So the localization team is like, uh, how do we translate this? Because basically what Ishida says in Japanese, as you will see if you rewatch this thing, uh, Turdhead says, hey man, are you okay? Like, you need your friends. And Ishida says, how can you call me a friend when you barely even know me? You don't know anything about me. And then Turdhead just, just, just basically his ass cheeks pucker up and he goes, well, that's me, and he walks away. <laughs> that, is, that is fantastic, because there's, there's different dialogues happening, which means that the emotional impact of what you see, not just the events, the events are the same, sure, the same shit happens on screen, but the way they go about it is different enough that there are distinct experiences in translation. And again, as a foreigner myself, this shit is wild to me, suggesting that whenever you assert there's only one thing to say something, I don't know how much more wrong you could be. And they give me shit for using English, English the way that I do. Well, let me, like I said, I haven't watched it in a while. I liked it and I wanted to get your opinion on it. So I'll have to rewatch both of them and then come back and redact whatever I said that I might be no. wrong on. It's but, on record. But the story you're presenting is very satisfying so far. And if, if we're wrong, hey, we're wrong. But in the moment, wowzers. Yeah. So how about that ambiguous scene that's meant to be a tension builder with no resolution until later? where the uh, Nishimiya family is sitting in a hospital and uh, our our girl Shoko looks really upset and sad and Grandma's smiling and the sister's kind of sad the mom's kind of sad and then later on Shoko is in her bed weeping because she just wants to cheer her up. But there, there, there's a prognosis and clearly it's not good and we don't know what's going to happen next. 
to the point where, for one moment, because it's not addressed clearly in the movie, the sister of Shoko, Yuzuru, uh, she has a scene with Grandma, and Grandma's there only occasionally, basically just to be a, a doting, sweet reminder of the time before. Which I gotta say, the uh, the old people have classic haircuts, the adults have sort of 90s and aughts haircuts, and the kids are just doing whatever they want to at this point. And that's meant to be sort of a representation of, no one knows what they're doing. But, basically, Yuzuru has a nightmare, she snuggles up to Grandma, and Grandma is lying there placidly. And then, a couple of scenes later, Ishida comes across Yuzuru, Shoko's sister, and she's wearing a uniform for the very first time, a school uniform, to which Ishida says, what are you, it's summertime, why are you wearing that? Oh, no big deal. And Ishida prods and prods and prods, and finally, the sister says, fine, you know what, come with me, come along. And they arrive at a funeral, and for a second, you see the last name of the family, Nishimiya, and you think, oh no, who died? And then it turns out that it's grandma that's died. But it didn't exactly get addressed explicitly with the hospital scene because it wasn't clear if it was grandma's prognosis. Like, yeah, I'm going to go soon. I should make you some more beet juice before I go. Because then, when we do arrive later on at the fireworks show in the summertime, at Shoko's scene where she tries to jump off the balcony, I was still convinced that she had a worsening condition, that she was going to die of something terminal. Because after that, she changed hearing aids to a single one. Or maybe she was going to lose her hearing even worser and she couldn't take that pressure. That's what it uh, is in the, the English version. Like the doctor tells her like, oh, sorry, your hearing's going to get worse. She'll lose your hearing soon. There's dialogue? There's fucking dialogue. There's dialogue in the hospital scene? Yeah. Like he, you hear her sitting there talking. It's like, oh, she's going to lose her hearing. Her hearing's going to get worse and she yep. will never recover. The hearing aids yep. won't help. Oh, fucking shit. Japanese is like 60% subtext. God damn it. Okay. Well, you never had that mystery arc because I wasn't sure who was being told what and whether or not it was, uh, I don't want this. I'm going to kill myself. But then later, the, the show says that it's more about the ongoing misery Shoko has had ever since before sixth grade, during sixth grade, and after sixth grade. And that's why she felt she would go out on a high note until she was saved. And our boy survived. And, 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 while Ishida is in a coma, and Shoko is doing all the work possible to get the friends back together that, that fled after the bridge scene. And she gets everyone's signatures and petitions, and she, she gets it all organized. She goes to visit Ishida in the hospital, and there's that scene where she has an internal dialogue with him. And then he stands in a hallway, looking over his shoulder, half-turned to her. And then he goes from being adult self to sixth-year-old self, or sixth-grade self, as she first met him. And then he kind of nods and says, well, I'm off. And he walks away and the screen whites out. I thought Ishida fucking died in the hospital. And the message would have been, on top of everything else that happens in this life, you can do your best and do a great job and still fail. That's... But then, but then the, the, the film pulls its punch. It goes, oh no, he, he wakes up, uh, Ishida wakes up in a bunch of tubes in the emergency room and wanders out of the hospital with nobody fucking noticing at all out into the street, and he happens to go to the bridge where they would have met, that pivotal bridge where everything happens, and there Shoko is, and they have a sweet moment together. Is, I felt cheap. That, that, what about the scene where uh, Purple Eyes stomps her ass? And then Mom 
proceeds to slap purple eyes and the purple it's just a slapping match there's no it's defense sla- it's a big old slapping match <laughs> no yeah. one no one puts up hands to block it they're just like pow pow they're changing I mean, slap exchanging slaps and it's like no one knows what defense is like put your hand up for the love of god you won't get slapped in the face hey man shoko's mom's got hands <laughs> <laughs> but i, I did um I it did was a- the right it was the right kind of desperate it was the right kind of aggression where to me it didn't come out of nowhere. To me, it was completely sensible because a lot of the story, at least quietly, if not explicitly, is about the misery of human helplessness and the desire to do something better despite what happens to you. Because in addition, and I'll get, I'll get to a point in a second here, but in addition, the entire sixth grade scene is so bizarre because clearly misbehavior and bad shit happens between the kids and the teacher doesn't get involved. But whatever his actual reasons are, to me, the tone was that the establishment does not care. We will push through as many of you as possible to the finish line to hit our metrics. I don't care how broken you are. You will contribute. You will work until you collapse and die, and we'll bring in some more people. It is utterly dispassionate, so it's up to you to shape what kind of humanity you want between one another. Yeah. I, uh... <clears throat> I, I like that... So let me ask you this. What caught my eye, I was like, you know, I'll give this movie a chance. And I'm like, okay, well, it's kind of, at first, when I first watched it, I'm like, oh, shit, this kid's going to kill himself. And all of a sudden, they cut to, like, a montage. And then the fucking Who play. And I'm like, they picked, out of all songs, My Generation by The Who. And it threw me off so much. I'm like, now I want to know what happens. Like, that's what kind of, like, wait a minute. Like, I wasn't expecting to hear a 60s rock song. Than a 2016 Japanese film, and I'm like, I wanna... I, well, uh, I I think it's a good poll, honestly. It, because... it, don't be wrong; it fits the it fits what the movie's about. But just when you first hear it, you're like, what the hell? Like what? what the who? It, it's a, it's a fantastic echo because the people themselves haven't changed that much in 80 years. They really haven't. 50. The but... tech has changed. The 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 culture has changed, right? Yeah. We're we're talking about cycles of folk roughly organized into 20-year chunks that are going through the same nightmare but faster as things go on so when you say talk about my generation i have to think about the sixth graders the teacher the principal the parents of the kids like the the parents have survived far enough to make kids and apparently again daddies don't stick around even in japan although i give credit the brown dad came back that was kind of cool but military yeah too okay the legal obligation, understood. Uh, well, he was, he, he, was uh, he was stationed there. Ain't much, ain't, ain't, <laughs> no much else where he can go. Sure. Circumstance aside, still, the absence of fathers on anybody's front is highly distressing. But that aside, uh, I would have to say the generational gap and the issues they're dealing with makes complete sense so i didn't feel off put saying wait a second that's an american song i just thought hey good pull it's the uh, third best thing i've heard since they put uh roundabout into jojo that i like how they just like with netflix they do go into the song on the actual ending credits of the first two season of jojo's using roundabout uh but they just cut it off at the baseline so right as the lyrics start so it just hits the baseline for roundabout and then it's like you get the baseline, you're like, yeah, next episode hits. And it's like, oh, well, okay, that's still badass. So even if you don't know what the song is, you're like, that's a pretty wicked-ass baseline. 
don't cut it off. Just keep listening. Yeah, well, don't say I'll get to the next episode when I feel like it. God damn it! Maybe I want to hear the whole cut of Last Train Home. Have you thought about that, motherfucker? <laughs> but uh, what? Let me let me get let me get to the art style. What do you think of the art style for this film? That's it, complicated. Because the, it's not a hundred percent CG, but it's some of it's hand drawn. So it's that mixture of not a hundred percent CG, not a hundred percent hand drawn. It's a blend, and I thought it was done very well. And the way they blended things and the way they did it in certain parts were CG and certain parts weren't and certain parts were hand-drawn. I thought it, they blended it very well and I, I enjoyed how it was drawn. But what do you think of it? The Sakoga, meaning the long-hold animation of not doing a quick cut but lingering with a set of motions, especially the hand gestures. Um, I exclaimed out loud, holy shit, catch up Sakoga! When Turdhead is sitting at the cafe and he's dipping a french fry into a mound of ketchup to use it as a cigarette during conversation with Ishida. And, I mean, they didn't have to make that a 80-frame animation, but they lingered on it for a few seconds and it looked damn good. Uh, the art style in terms of the motion was good throughout. Indulgent, a little bit, uh, a little extra animu than necessary, but I appreciated the smoothness of most of the things we saw portraying the mundane in a lingering fashion. That was good. The colors were consistently satisfying. The detail for textures, for backgrounds of bridge railings and classrooms, uh, very, very appreciated because they're, they're sort of, we don't live there, but we can relate to it. But if you do live there, these are just everyday objects that are popping on screen. I did not appreciate the digital effects very much. The chromatic aberration, the blurriness at the edges, and the color distortion. Because I get what it's meant to do metaphorically. It's A, modern, and B, you're sort of disassociating. You're not fully centered upon what's happening around you. It's a distortion of your own reality. I get the message. I don't have to enjoy looking at it. That being said, when there was a breakthrough, especially within Dreams or the last sequence where the world gains clarity when he looks around, you actually you feel like your vision widens because the filter gets dropped away for that instance. That felt good once you've made peace with how it's going to look outside of that. I My concerns for this is a stylistic, artistic expression more so than the human tale you told me would be, was somewhat justified, but I made enough parameter limitations in myself. I enabled unlimited ammo, basically, to get over the part where it's going to do some navel-gazing and give you just a few, just a few anime tropisms. I imagine the benefit of this being a movie is budget distribution, because it was relentlessly good-looking for the majority of the time, as opposed to having episode over episode where a couple of scenes look great, and then we got to make the money last till next thing. So, I would be interested, actually, in showing my wife this at some point. Maybe not immediately, but at some point. Then again, the blended digital contemporary style is maybe a tiny bit less genuine than something else that's a fully hand-drawn animation pick. It's harder to do. You have to be much more economical with where your keyframes and animators are going to go because it's difficult to render gorgeous things for long scenes. You have to use cuts fairly frequently or linger on static shots that are well set. The advantage of CG blending here is that you can have more consistent or exotic camera movements and you can spend time lingering on characters and doing little things like shadow shifting across their features, their hair moving, the, the, the shimmer in their eyes, etc. 
overall, the net effect is very positive. I don't know how it will come. It it would come across in a different kind of production. Like if it were fully CG, I don't think I'd be on board because most of the animations in fully CG anime are very stiff, or just they they take you out of it. And that's maybe exactly the point why they did this. If if you're supposed to connect with the characters, but your eyes are just screeching saying "Get me out of here," that's that's tough. Okay. Well, we've been lingered on talking about a silent voice for about an almost an hour and a half now. Almost. It's actually not a. It's not even called silent voice. What's it called? It's the it's the shape of sound. Is that what it, it is in Japanese? Okay. Yeah. The so shape localization. Of, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's 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 billed as a silent voice. That's the way it is in Netflix. The way it's it is on Wikipedia, etc. But in the movie, the title card is the shape of sound, and that becomes even more ephemeral. It's not the the thing you can't hear. It's making sense of what's coming at you, and that's the fucking message much of the time, along with power. Don't forget power. It's very important. And where's dad? Where's dad is always the underpinning factor in these fucking stories. So, but I, I was not misled. Thank you for recommending this, and it made me think of something else, actually, as well. So I'm reading it now. It's Kono Katachi. Uh, the Shape of Voice is what it's saying. At the, the end title card in English, it says... The shape of voice, which makes at the time I'm like, why the fuck does it say that? So I'm assuming at the end title card in Japanese, it's in well, what is it called in Japanese writing? Depends. Is it kanji or is it kanji. katakana? It could, katakana? Kanji? I don't know. I'm at uh, one day I'll learn Japanese and I'll be able to explain it. Uh, it says the shape of voice, so this makes more sense that the movie is called the shape of voice. Uh, but. A silent voice, a shape of voice. Sir, I want to know, final verdict, what do you think of this movie, and would you recommend it to other people? Cheese. Cheese? What do I think of this movie? I think it would be better as a show. And as such, it's a hard recommend. If you would like it to be a tearjerker, if you've listened through all of this and the spoilers don't bother you, it's worth seeing for the story alone in terms of how it rolls out, because the rollout pace is very good. But again, it has the same hooks as TV writing throughout the film. So you're intrigued, but after the fourth one, you think to yourself, God, how much more is there? I would not recommend this to anime fans. I would not. The action is very sparse when it happens, when there's action. The characters don't offer sufficient fan service, or they, they talk too long on a subject that's meant to linger. This would be something I would recommend to maybe parents who know what Studio Ghibli is. Because it's not for kids. Even for teens, they would connect insofar as, oh man, I share some of these feels. But I'm not confident that we'll process the information. Kind of like if you tell a 16-year-old to play Disco Elysium. I mean, they could physically play the game and like, wow, 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 turns. But none of the discussion will be contextually connected to them. It's just numbers, facts, names, and places. They'll just laugh that Kuno says dick a lot. Which is funny, but that's not the whole picture. My recommendation would be for people in their mid-20s to people in their 40s, perhaps. If they're interested in seeing a humanist story told through a specific society and a metropolitan setting centered on the kids that are leaving high school pretty soon here. But it's very awkward and inaccessible in many ways because it's simultaneously slow. And if you are like me, 
reading into things beyond what's being directly flatly stated, you get a satisfaction of understanding what's really going on, but the dissatisfaction of where the focus might go to instead. But overall, the story it's telling is deftly handled. If you hang in there, pay attention and read into the nuances and like me, have intrigue of, oh, I know the bomb's going to go off, but what kind of bomb is it, and where are the pieces going to land? Then that is satisfying. I give it a soft recommendation. I would like to show it to my wife. I could think of a couple friends I would recommend this to. I'm honestly really surprised you dug this as much as you say you did, Chucks. Not to discourage you, just... I mean, this this is not Black Clover shit. This is not Black Lagoon shit. This is not fairy tale shit. This is something a little bit different. So you know how it, I... You want to know how I found this film? This is going to get a little personal here. Okay. Uh, so you uh, you were my roommate before I moved back here. And yeah, yeah. you knew I was going through a rough time with the mom situation. So when I moved, yeah. when I was still back here, I was watching a lot of sappy movies and shit because I was bummed the fuck out. I didn't have a job. I uh, just came out of a long-term relationship, so I was really bummed out. So I was watching sappy movies. Maybe they would help me. Uh, so... Watch the Notebook. Surprisingly, I like the Notebook too. It's gonna. It is. It is a very good horror film. <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. Uh, it's a fucking nightmare because dementia. It is. <laughs> and and the, the poor fuck, the poor dumb stupid fuck is stuck in this loop until she fucking dies and he can't do it himself. Spoilers for the Notebook. And magically, he died with her because his heart gave out. He lost the will to live. Uh, he pulled a Padme. He pulled a Padme. But the Notebook is a really good film. Fuck that film. <laughs> One out of five. Go watch it. <laughs> one out of five. Recommend. <laughs> yes. That is one of my one out of five recommends. Perfectly fine. I despise the premise. But you will have a good time. I hate all of his other films, by the way. Uh, I about what, said Gosling? John. Huh? Gosling or the director? No, the guy who wrote the book. They're books. Oh. Oh. Well, give me a name. Uh, let me look it up. Uh, he also did. Uh, well, I'll look it up. You just keep talking <laughs> i can't stop laughing though god damn it so needless to say i was i was a really dark spot not not like uh shoyo here or, or ishida um not not playing anything like that i was just really bummed out so i come across this one night when i'm up really late because i don't have work oh dude well the, the writer of the notebook wrote real steel so he's absolved that's Did a really good dad that's a really good dad movie. A really good dad, deadbeat dad film. So No, no, no. Not the film. The books. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Anyway, sorry. You were in a pit of misery because life got a little bit real. Go yeah, on. correct. Nicholas Sparks. He did uh, that Miley Cyrus movie where she met her uh, husband. And I was forced to watch that. So I was watching a lot of bummed out films like this. And uh, I came across this. And I read it. Like I said, the first time I saw it. I heard The Who, and then I started watching it, and I'm like, oh, this is really good. But even when I got out of that funk and got a job, I still enjoyed it. It wasn't like Gurren Lagan, where I was like, well, my perspective changed. I enjoyed it even more. It was, you know, this is even not in a bummed-out misery state that I uh, I still enjoy this. It's still pretty good. And so I, I come to enjoy it. But the, the reason I wanted to wind down a little bit on this, because I, I want to recommend another film to you, because um, you most likely will like it, and I listen to it in English, and it's a Netflix-only film. Uh, it's... Hold on. Okay. Hold on. Is it different from tone from the movie we just discussed? Yes. Okay. Before you tell me that one, I have a recommend for you. Go ahead. That I've mentioned before, that I got strong feels in this film, except for the shape of sound, 
slash a silent voice is pitched as a movie for younger folk. But really, it's a movie about adults that you can see the fundamental blocks in the kids. I was very much reminded of Jinro, the Wolf Brigade, which is not at all for kids, but I watched it when I was in my very early 20s and I want to see again. And it is available on Amazon Prime so far under IMDb TV, meaning it's free with ads. It's available elsewhere too, but that's just the most convenient place that I found it as. Have I discussed Jinro with you before? No. Okay. The reason I thought of it, I thought of Jinro during A Silent Voice, is exactly the interpersonal relationships that people have a miserable time trying to express to one another just enough or too much or too little, where sadness, mistakes, failure, and regret occur because you want to reach for something that would heal you, but you don't know how to go about it, so things get worse. And that's the nugget, that's the core of what the sentiment is, but that core is wrapped up in alt-history 1970s Japan when the Nazis won and they were collaborators. So you have balls-to-the-wall armored state police with full-body armor and MG42s suppressing insurrections from people who want a different order of things, who are on the way out, by the way. The, the state police is now out of favor. And it's an insurrectionist tale followed by an internal investigations affair with a romance in the middle. How does that sound to you? That sounds kind of nuts, and I'm kind of intrigued now. Please, look up J-I-N. I already looked have it up. Cool. It's... I regret that it's with ads, but like there are four minute breaks every twenty minutes or so. And it's, it's about on, an hour fifty minutes. It's on Amazon. Amazon Prime via IMDb TV is where I found it, uh, and there's two B. There's other things, but Jinbro is fucking weird because it is the third film in a sequence of, of movies that were live action before called Kerberos, and there's a Netflix Korean adaptation of Jinro, or it's called Ilang, but. Outside of aesthetic, it has nothing to do with this film. So the reason I remember it is because the poster looked cool. Like, it's it's glowing red eyes, full-armored guy with machine gun. Machine gun knight. Looks awesome. Then you get into the context of what's happening here. And yes, you see the image of a fully garbed-out enforcer of political authority, but there's people in them armors. And they themselves are enactors of a will they may not agree with necessarily. And people still have to live despite the merciless system all around them. And this movie is classically hand-drawn, 1999 release. Uh, the loud moments look amazing. The quiet moments look great. The dialogue is just this really grating, uncomfortable degree of sterility where you wish that people would tell each other how they really feel. I think it's only available right now in, uh, in English dub, but the Japanese is also worthwhile. And it's, it's almost a nightmare because... These people live in a cold world that's very believable, very relatable, and they want something better. And they have a slim margin of error available to get that something better, else they fuck it all up, and they have to live with the consequence. Hmm. So and they, they can't grapple with their own reality, so they tell each other stories instead. And the musical score is the right... It, it's just the best depression blanket. It is so haunting. To this day, I love it. Okay, so I'm going to come back to A Silent Voice real quick. I read the synopsis to the manga. Yeah. Completely different than the fucking movie. Fair enough. Fair and enough. It, it's weird. Essentially, at the ending, it's after high school. It's called Coming of Age Day. And essentially, 
it's implied that Shoya and Shoka, I, I would assume by reading this brief synopsis that they're a couple and she's helping him through his nervousness by going back to their elementary school. And it's, it's not the same. And I'm kind of curious. Now I want to read it and compare and contrast. I'm like, wait a minute. Like this is nothing like the movie when I'm so, and it's only in seven volumes, so I can get that done in a day. You sure can. So it, it is something that I might be invested in, but, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get to the movie. I will look, uh, watch Jinro because uh, I got tomorrow off too. Uh, it's good. I'll, I'll watch it's, it. It's a sad good. I'm probably going to watch a silent voice in English again, then watch it in Japanese, and then be like, holy shit, this is completely two different films. And then go watch this because, you know, I like to stay up until three in the morning on my off days. Um, but <laughs> I'm recommending it to you because I want to get your opinion. I didn't like the film. I did like the colors they used and the bright colorful thing it reminded me of jet set radio uh you can find it on netflix because uh, clearly i'm assuming you watched uh, a shape of voice or a silent voice on netflix i did okay so it is called uh, i don't know if you've seen it recommended yet words bubble up like soda pop i haven't seen that yet last year's release it just came out on netflix just came out and i also want to this is going to curtail into another question i have for you Okay, let's see who made this. I'm unfamiliar. It is colorful, certainly. I can see that from the still banners. Let me see who's making this shit. So, what's your question? Follow up. Have you seen the new Netflix film, Pictures, that they just released as John Choi as Spike Spiegel for the Cowboy Bebop live-action film coming out on November 19th? Not. John Choi, Spike Spiegel. Excuse me, why type this out? Uh, oh, it's a television have, uh, series. I'm sorry. I thought it was a movie. Uh, it's, it's probably a show. I have very limited confidence in any adaptation of what this is because what you can portray in animation can be sufficiently abstract as to accentuate very emotional elements. It's harder to do with live film. It can be done. But in terms of this actor's face, who I, I've I've never watched White Castle, but I have seen me um, a couple of times seeing film. I believe he's a capable actor, and I don't want to base any expectation on the show based on just him. I, I'm not looking for costume accuracy nor the wig quality. He doesn't have to have green big Mars hair. But this entire project, I'd have to ask what it's looking to accomplish because, as I just mentioned, the high budget live action production of Il Lung the Korean version of Jinro. It looks good when it's doing action stuff, but the tone of everything outside of that is completely lost from what the original meant to portray or focus on. But hey, the notch lapel is nice, just the, the shirt collar isn't as ridiculously popped, and that's the problem, is that anime is more visually louder. Mustafa Shakir as Jet Daniela Black. Pineda. And she plays oh, Faye. I mean, listen... If they can find some way to mash up and blend Cowboy Bebop, the show, the animated show, and Firefly, I'm okay with a bastard child of those two properties. Because that's probably the best this could have done. I don't know. I haven't seen. But we'll be able to look at later on, I suppose. Yeah, about two and a half months. So I'm really hoping they still use Tank as the opening theme song. Why? What's the point of that? 
it's still tank is probably one of the best opening theme songs to any anime i've watched wow it hits the tone of the of what the show is going to be about and it does everything in a good opening sequence it does it's not flashy it's not anything but you have that well, hot, excuse me not flashy it's not as, as like some of the other shit i've seen it's not as flashy as some of the other shit but it hits what i want to see you get images of the characters everything of the sort and you get writing in the background so i hope they do some keep tank but i hope they change the background or whatever they're going to do for that not like some like breaking bad or something where it's just like cowboy bebop then it fades away with like some small i, don't, I disagree Okay. I could see the seatbelts arranging something different for the opening. Because that'd be a way of saying, we know the people who did the thing. And I'm staring at a poster of Spike Spiegel's head outline right now, so I'm a big fan of the show. But if the, the jazz band were to write a different piece, it doesn't have to sound at all like Tank. It could be something different. But then you got the creators to do an interpretation of an expression of the show. It can hint at the previous, but if you just lift and rip, we know the original song is hype on its own, first of all, the entire seven-minute arrangement, but the opening to the anime is... I'm going to use the word iconic. It, it is. The song plays, you're thinking of the opening, most likely. And if you say, where's this from? It'll tell you it's this, not the band. That's listed third. First, it's the show. I understand what the fan sentiment is. I would think it's a very cheap move and a mistake if they graft one to the other. For example, does does the Witcher TV show sound like the Witcher games? Answer, no, it does not. I, I couldn't tell you. I haven't played the games enough. Sure, but just even on signature sound, no, it does its own thing, you know, with, with, with strings and such, and so be it. It doesn't sound like Witcher 3 because you have the same sort of ululating, uh, <laughs> let's call them ethnic, uh, Polish and Slav culture influences with their folk songs. They don't. They are catering to a different mood. And the character interpretation is different than it is in the games and the books. And that's okay. It's a lot to be there. So if you tell me I want the thing I love in this interpretation of this thing, the <clears throat> excuse me, similar to the Transformers audience, the rabid fans of the OG properties, the metal properties, Beast Wars, etc., they would be they were super critical of the Michael Bay films, which were compromised movies in a lot of ways but still entertainment vehicles, and they sounded almost nothing like the OG shows. That's fine. If we take the adaptation of other properties here, like if they were to do... Well, that's, that's tricky. If you were to do a, an adaptation of Gurren Lagann in live action, I don't know why you would. It'd be fucking nuts. That show is more cohesive, so it'd be difficult to dodge Sorayero Days from the opener of the show, because that one really gets up into your guts very quickly. But <laughs> here's the problem. Every episode of Cowboy Bebop, the show, the anime, has a different sound palette. Yes, they have the harmonica overture themes and moments, but they have different signatures and styles of musical, musical identity within the show. And that's really important. So if you just rip Tank and you put it in the beginning of the episode, the live-action show, that sets the subliminal expectation that every episode of the show is going to have to perform to that standard. And if they lift the soundtrack directly and just reshoot the episodes basically shot for shot, that's cheap. I would, so I would be supportive in that. Exactly. So if you're going to do a departure 
you're not bound by Star Wars rules. You don't have to do the Imperial March or the, the, the title crawl every time you feature it. You can do something else. The best compromise I can think of is, again, get either the seatbelts or a different jazz band that sounds similar to just riff and do a different original piece or borrow from their catalog. That is the most honest thing you can do. Now, because, go ahead. Like you said, when you think of Tank, you think of Cowboy Bebop. Now, I'd be cool if they used it on the first episode, and they were like, okay, so that way you know, boom, because that iconic one, two, three, let's go, and then boom, 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 uh, you get the bass line, you, that, that, you're, you're, you get that feeling like, I'm watching Cowboy Bebop. And that's something I would like to see them set up. Like you said, though, they got somebody that's a different jazz band, you know, know. the seatbelts, and then they changed up the intro. Cool with that too. Or if they use Tank as the ending credits. Cool oh. with that too. Ending credits? <laughs> considering the ballad that you get in the animated show Re- that's a real folk blues? Difference. Real folk blues, yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay, listen, I will accept if during an early episode, if not the opener, you hear Tank playing on a radio in the bebop or somewhere offside and somebody like turns it off, that I can see. But I could give that directly okay. blasting you in the face, that's that's a questionable move. Because, and this is going to sound super petty and completely ignorant in terms of what crowd is pandering to, which is a bizarre thing in itself. It's like the um, the Ghost on a Shell live action, live action movie. They made that movie. I don't think it was for anybody in particular because the box office and the fan response and the critical response were all, okay, you, you tried. Spike Spiegel is a Martian man of questionable lineage. Kind of a a dusky Asian white, I guess, blend. Uh Jet Black is a a man of questionable but largely Western leaning lineage, possibly, with the nose and then the brows, but it could be Asian, it's possible. Uh Faye Valentine. Basically everyone is a mutt from somewhere, right? Yeah. The live action casting choices are decidedly of a Designed by committee North American representation market, I feel. And this is going to sound bad. If they were to introduce Edward into the show, they would likely make commentary of, oh yeah, Edward is totally LGBTQ+. Absolutely, represent. Even though that was never a subject that they even focused on very much in the show, outside of saying, Ed, are you a boy or a girl? Eh, Ed doesn't know. And that's as far as I went. Ed lives in the internet. Ed, Ed, Ed is a hodgepodge of things. But here, if they get concrete with the idea and focus on it and wink at the camera, I don't know what we're doing here anymore. Similar to, we made Jet Black a black man. Because his name is Black, so it makes sense, right? Sure. That's not, a, that's not the wrong choice, necessarily, but is this of any sort of commentary? Or if we're going to go to see space stuff, space stuff is going to look a whole lot like, well, somewhere dense urban American. And I always say this because they might go to a place that looks like space Mexico, or space Hong Kong, or space Calcutta, and they probably won't, because they got to work with what they have, and I, I, I do get that. But I'm very concerned about the whole presentation card that will cheapen the show, because we made the following casting choices for the sake of well, politics. Whereas in the show, you got to see people from all kinds of walks of life. 
then you could broadly say Asians and Blacks and Westerner whites and Middle Americans and Islanders. But they were always so unobtrusive that basically it, it, it felt that, that there was a good video about this, actually. One of the establishing shots you got in the anime. You see, for about two, three seconds, a street corner sign. And that street corner sign is festooned with labels and street indicators, all pointing different ways, all written in different languages. And gl glimpsing at that, all you have to know is that it's different languages and you understand a bunch of people live here. By necessity, space colonies, you got to get them off of Earth. So fucking cram them in the tin cans and launch those tin cans into orbit and they'll just live there. And it's unobtrusive. It just makes sense. People are forced together like they are in cities and that's what it is. But here, you're going to have casting choices and you get to pick from a diaspora of different ethnicities mostly for the sake of, look, we got one of those, 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 etc. And it becomes harder to represent. Because do you remember the Venus episode? Vaguely. There were plant seeds that were very valuable being smuggled. Yeah, there was okay. a bounty on Venus. There was a guy that wouldn't leave the main character alone to say, man, teach me to be like Judo Man like you. Rocco was the character's name. Uh, Rocco was kind of orange, and it's really hard to tell if he's like a spray tan Jersey boy or if he's Latino or whatever. But you just stop the part where Rocco's orange. So if you bring in a Moroccan man and cast him as Rocco, if you're doing that episode, you probably won't. Questions begin. How important is that? How important is the ethnicity of this person here living on Venus, ostensibly with no national obligation or legacy, whatever? We're here. We're here post the destruction of Earth. Well, what country are you from? How does that matter? I'm in space Tijuana, and apparently we serve tacos. So do you want a taco? We got those. Oh. Anyway, you got me in a on a ethno-political rant, I suppose. I slightly did. Back up, back to the, the movie I want you to watch, sir. Where's Words bubble up like soda, soda pop. pop. I somewhat enjoyed this film. I feel like this would be a film that you probably might enjoy more than I would. Uh, so the reason I'm recommending it is because I want to see what you think of the art style and what the film is about and seeing if we get the same thing out of it. Well, that depends, because when you described a silent voice to me, your description did not address many of the elements and themes in this film. I try to leave everything vague for you, sir, because if I try to describe it the way I see it, when you watch it, it's always going to be completely different. Still? Okay, okay. Give me one or two flavor words besides color. Because it looks Co very colorful. It, How we got to stand? It, it, that is established. It's a very colorful Jet Set Radio-like coloring palette. If anybody knows what Jet Set Radio is, it's a classic game from the late uh, late 90s, early aughts. You had Jet Set Radio Future and Jet Set Radio. The same type of color palettes are used. It is a film about children coming of age and dealing with dislikes in their own body. But also at the same time, it's a love story that never gets finished. Okay. The director used to be an animator and a few things in the last five years, so he's fairly young talent. Uh, the writer wrote Eureka 7. Uh, and he wrote Cowboy Bebop, apparently. That's interesting. 
Huh. There's more, but just as far as the highlights, that's that's a pretty firm pull. Thanks, Algorithm, for pointing that out. <laughs> uh, standalone Complex, Blood Last Vampire. He wrote, let's see, three episodes. Which, those are decent episodes. Not my favorites, but I get it. Uh, script, 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 screenplay, screenplay, Halo Legends. He did the, the package segment. That was a good segment. Okay, so this person is mostly... Oh, here we go. Uh, Resident Evil Revelations 2. He wrote that. That's not bad. Not a bad writing. I'm trying to find which studio animated this. Fly Dogs. Okay. Oh no, hold on. That's a that's a thing. That's a concert. Scripts and characters. Yeah, who the fuck did write this? Written by Production is Sublimination Signal MD is the production company. Distributed by this, release dates, running time, 90 minutes. It is a very short film, so you don't have to sit through uh, two hours. Uh, it depends, man. Some movies, they can be four hours long and they still work pretty well. Other times you go, ah, can we skip? Can we give me the, uh, the, the notes? And again, that depends on how much you connect to whatever's happening. And diff different phases of life, apparently you connect to very different things. Hmm? And uh, sometimes you used to hate before, you can look at it and say, oh, this is worth laughing at. This is great. I do find it hilarious that uh, when you read the thing of it, it's an anime comedy drama. It didn't make me laugh at all, but I guess it, it may. But I watched it in English, so. Well, at the same time, Netflix released the last boy scout with bruce willis and that's listed as a comedy and i thought are you fucking kidding me isn't that the one where they sh no no yeah it's the last boy scout's the one where your nfl player has the gambling debts in the very first beginning and he shoots the guy going to the end zone that's accurate it's an action comedy folks i had to remember that what's the one with the mar uh, not marlon that's yeah, marlon waynes right and adam sandler i don't think adam sandler was there but i could be mistaken hold on Doing spot research. Live on air, just for you. But yeah, you, you get to hear Bruce Willis say, I think I might have fucked a squirrel to death, and that's what makes it a comedy, because you go, <laughs> gallows humor. Uh, it's bulletproof, and it's Damon Wayne's. He's the one who did uh, Major Pain. Okay. How does that pertain to this? It's a buddy cop film. Oh. Yeah. A Damon Wayne's buddy cop film. Yeah. Which Wayans was in Dungeons and Dragons? Was that Marlon Wayans? I think that is Marlon Wayans. I know they're making a new movie. I'm yeah, it's sorry, Marlon Wayans. Making a new movie of what? What are you referring to? Dungeons and Dragons. What's the point? I don't know. You're you're talking to the wrong guy, my man. It comes out in 2023. Fair enough. So be it. I will say, though, I'm surprised I saw Silent Voice before I ever saw your name, because I kept getting hyped your name. And it's... That, that was the issue that I took, is you told me about this particular banner, and I looked at weathering with you, your name, etc. On all of these sort of ennui staring off into distance films, I thought to myself, is this becoming a genre the same way as, oh, maybe you shouldn't pick up D Girls in a Dungeon? where it's phrasing for light novels and whatever point there is to make, it's just buried. It's buried in, 
Oh, feels. But the feels are very vague. I was pleasantly surprised by the shape of sound because it it did just enough to dip into the subjects. But a lot of the heavy lifting was done by the environments, the body language, and what the camera was looking at versus the words that were said. The words that were said were, appropriately, sixth grade level words, which is people yelling at each other in most other situations, which doesn't get you very far. It doesn't. So I'm going to I'm gonna stick into the entertainment field here and kind of get us off uh, the anime movie theme that we've been on for the past two hours. Uh, I finally got to watch the second episode of What If. And this episode is What If T'Challa became Star-Lord instead of uh, Peter Quill? And I have to say... It's wait, a second, a- wait a second, wait a second. What if an heir to a noble throne... Instead of a whiskey tango orphan, became Star Lord. <laughs> okay, that's got legs. Go ahead. It's it's pretty good. Um, so essentially, he by show he essentially shows up and becomes Star Lord. And the first thing you see, I can never remember the guy's name. The very beginning of the first film where he walks in and grabs the piece, uh, the black character who's in just about everything. Uh, I'm on Hansu. Thank you. Uh, he shows up and he's like, "Oh my God, you're you're Star Lord!" So from the get go, and unlike Peter Quill, where everybody's like, "Who the hell are you?" T'Challa is well known, um, and they become friends, and he's obsessed with T'Challa. So the whole one time- came from a fictional economic superpower; the other came from a trailer park. Where's the surprise? That that is true. Um, and so it was re- it was really well done. It's still the animation style still bothers me a little bit, but it's not bad. Um, but he uses words and convinces people and is unlike Peter Quill where he tries to get rich, he steals from the poor, uh, steals from the rich to give to the poor. He he robs certain things to take it to get turn money in to give back to people. And the Ravengers have turned around and he's like the head of the Ravengers, but Yondu is still the captain. Um uh, and he even convinced Thanos that his plan for genocide is wrong. And Thanos is part of the Ravengers. So you sit there and you're going, what the hell? Like, okay. I'm sorry. Are you saying Revengers? Essentially. Because, you know, it's, it's a common bugbear. It's like when you say ruin, it's hard not to put a D in the end in English. Ruin? So people just say ruined or equipped. People say Ravengers with a middle N. <laughs> and I will just go ahead and tiptoe right past the joke where the end applies in this episode. Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> so needless to say, he becomes part of that. He gets all there. And so there, to fill in Thanos's power that he had there in the universe, the Collector becomes the head honcho badass. And he gets the same group of baddies to protect him that Thanos had. Uh, so the goal is that, uh, God, what is her name? the bald-headed blue lady from Marvel and that Thanos' daughter. Can't remember. Rabola? Yes, sir. Uh, Parallelogram, we'll go with that. Uh, she convinces them to... Nebula, that's what it is. Nebula, thank you. All right, go on. Not Neb- important, go on. Yeah, Nebula convinces them, like, hey, look, we need to go rob... Uh, the, uh, God dang it, the Collector, because he has these special seeds that if you plant it on any barren pan- planet, within a year, it'll be a fertile planet. It won't be barren anymore. So he goes, okay, so they go to rob the Collector. 
And in the process, uh, he's trying to make through the city, and she's pretending to sell something to the collector. And it's a, a plot within a plot. I go, like, their plan has a plan within it. The plan was for T'Challa to get caught uh, so they could actually get close enough so you, uh, Nebula could steal the, the plant seed. And in the way... Yes. He, so what? Does T'Challa retain the armor? He does not. Okay. He has so he, what Peter has. He has the mask, he has the boots, he has the gun. Along with a massive amount of resources and a rare mineral to help bolster his operations. No, so he is told by Yondu that his planet, or uh, Wakanda has died, been blown up. It had war and it was destroyed. Oh, wow, and weird. So what okay. happens is when he's in the collector's area, he uh, finds a Wakandan spaceship. And he sees a message from his dad like, hey, my son was taken. Uh, if you get this message, please let him know we're looking for him. Yada, yada, yada. And he's like, what the hell? So he gets pissed off at all of them because he gets caught. Uh, and they go, hey, you know, we're family. And he's like, you're not my family. You're just a bunch of ragtag assholes. And everybody's like, oh, you hurt my feelings. And he's like, I don't care. You guys lied to me. This is ridiculous. I wanted to see my family. You didn't give me that opportunity. And they're like, hey, but we're your family now. And then the second plan was that he was intentionally supposed to get caught. And so he does, and Nebula rescues them out. So while they're exiting, Thanos stays behind to fight. And like, hey, you can't take him on by yourself. And he's like, get out of here. And she's like, but you know, you, you can't beat them. You're not strong enough. He's like, I'm not, you know, I may not be strong, but I'm mad. And so he starts fighting the uh, people that are coming. And Yondu comes to Chachala and is like, hey, I'm going to help you out because we're family. And you're sitting there going, okay. So it's two on one. They're fighting the Collector. And the Collector uh, manages to get Korg from uh, Thor Ragnarok's fist. And he uses them as boxing gloves, essentially, and slides them on. And he's fighting uh, T'Challa and Yondu. And they're Has like, the Collector ever, ever fought in the comics? A, a little bit. Only a couple that I know of. He's not some badass. He's more like, hey, my job is to hire people to get me all these things that I want. So that well, Exactly. So when somebody comes calling, you say, nope, and you yeet out of there. So what happens, though, is is that they make a... Him and Yondu and T'Challa make a plan called Sticky Fingers, where Yondu comes after him, and then the Collector catches him, and then T'Challa comes after him. Like, all right, I'm coming. He turns on his boosters on his shoes and he comes flying at him and he goes to punch him. And then he realizes that his glove on his left wrist is gone. And then Yondu opens up all the cages of the people that uh, the collector has collected. And T'Challa hits him in a box. And so everybody else is there that is out of the cages are now going to go fuck up the collector. And Yondu and T'Challa escape in the Wakandan ship. And he's like, what do we do now? And he's like, we're going to go home. He's like, you can see any universe. He's like, I want to go see Wakanda. So they show back up, and he appears back up on Earth, and he introduces everybody to his dad and his family, and then his new family. And it's like, oh, this is so sweet and sentimental. He's like, this is my other family that I have made since I've been gone. And it's like, oh, that's that's adorable. Wait, wait, wait. You're saying Wakanda got destroyed in the war. But it was whatever. a lie. But it was a lie. Yeah. So immediately the Wakandans captured all the space aliens and put them in imprisonment to torture and extract information to expand their empire because why change a good tradition? 
Who knows? But they don't. And they have a giant you, feast for T'Challa being back. You're, you're not like us. We're a hidden nation for a reason. Son, you brought the wrong guests home. Also, where have you been? Essentially, I get it. I understand. Um, thank you for telling me the variant of the more things change, the more things stay the same. Mm -hmm. And uh, that erodes even more of my hope that this could be anything more than just just really, really switching around color palettes. Yeah, essentially that's what it is. It uh, or excuse me, ultra fan service the animated series. I want to see if they what what else they do because they're only releasing it weekly. I think it's like every Sunday. And so sure. I want to yeah. know what they what the next episode is because right now none of them have blown me away. They've all been like you, okay. You really expect that they'll blow you away? Yeah, some of them might. I want to see what they do with Marvel Zombies. Do you have any confidence that they'll do Marvel Zombies in this format? Has anything about the tone, the language, the events, the consequences, or the violence led you to believe that desiccated tissue and dismemberment is going to be part of the picture? They, when they did the trailer for it, one of the couple of the glimpses were more like Captain American Zombie and a couple other characters like Iron Man Zombie. So I want to see if they do do it and how they do it. it it's more along the lines of curiosity of how they're going to pitch that, like you're saying. What right now makes me think they're going to do dead, decaying tissue, blood, gore, and people getting their heads bitten off? In, you know what's really cool about Marvel Zombies? What? It's a brain-dead concept. Do-do-ting. Well, it, it really is. It what is. What the fuck is the point? It's, oh. it's together ice cream flavors. I know the answer. I'm not interested in the answer. Because the concept of undeath such as portrayed here, if it's explained, it's explained only to validate that this is a thing. Because if it's a thing in the same way that humanity sees the fantasy of zombie on death, that will be the equivalent of an infinity stone. And everybody everywhere would say, I want to wield this force either for myself or to mess up everybody else's day. Not dissimilar to Star Wars and Death Troopers. Because... Uh, like it's it's an it it's a state of existence that like necromorphs tries to latch onto any form of life and just convert itself and transform into a further propagation vector. There's it, it's it's like the chimera ants. This is a very binary situation. Either they don't exist or they exist and we exterminate them altogether. Good guys and bad guys come together to go fuck no, we're not doing zombies. But no, it has to happen somehow, and ultra-powerful beings have to just act stupid. Because, like you say, <laughs> if I don't know, I don't care what the rules are in this case. If the Watcher sees a zombie situation happening, how does the Watcher not tap a shoulder of somebody in that reality and say, "Hey, BT Dubs, zombies, go take care of this, please"? Because they're not. They they actually explain why the uh, Watu and all the other Watchers don't don't do anything is because they've tried to interfere with society once and it ended up with them killing them all each other. So like, well, we're just here to watch. We're just here to make sure, you know, shit doesn't go bad. Um, and if it does, we're not going to do anything about it. But when they do do something about it, it's it, the classic, no direct involvement, simply influence clause. No, well, I'm not going to do anything, but there's this other person that could talk to this person that could talk to this thing. You say the rules firmly. Chucks, you're saying, this is how it works. We're discussing major publishing comic books. 
There are no rules. The so rules Watu, will change as hard as they have to. Watu does interfere in a recent comic book, but he ends up dying from it, and then he comes back later on like, well, surprise, bitch, I can't die. He's like the Eternals. Like, oh, you died? But you can't die, and you get reborn in this other place? Okay, well, that's fucking useless. Like, there was no point, but okay. I understand what you're saying. I understand. I, I don't see the stakes. And when you have a concept like, yeah, but this time it's Marvel mummies. Ooh, and, and Marvel werewolves. How about Marvel vampires? You're just bashing flavors together. By the way, there's they have fully fledged out the Marvel zombie universe, and it, they have three more volumes and explain how everything happened and then how that whole universe has been essentially wiped out by the zombies and now they're trying to get to other different dimensions or other earths and other universes in the multiverse. So is, is it a complete corruption where it's a single consciousness or a single idea such as eat more stuff that gets translated to every post that gets affected? Essentially like they just have to eat like there's always a hunger. So they have to go eat everything. Do they eat each other? Nope. Weird. Well, as with any grand enterprise, there are exceptions. So I'm sure there are more sentient and less sentient zombies, right? There are. And that means that with that sort of indisparity, there's going to be some sort of next stage development within the infection where a different form of quasi-life will emerge and will begin to reconquer the zombie world from the inside, right? Nope, not yet. They'll call themselves the Grave Walkers or something, and then your favorite characters will appear because their hearts were too pure to be corrupted forever. Because, like you said, are there zombie celestials? Because that's interesting. If they did, that'd be kind of neat in zombie Eternals. But what happens if an Eternal turns into a zombie? Do they die or do they come back? And that—that's the weird thing about the Eternals now. Like Thanos is an Eternal, and I just don't—he's an off. He has the deviant gene that all Eternals have, but his came out, so that's why he's purple and evil. And it's just like, the fuck? Okay. Like, like whatever you say, oh, yes. guys. Yes, the deviant gene. That's only 30 years removed for, from, hey guys, eugenics are really cool. <laughs> yeah, that, that's... Deviant gene. What are you going to say next? Oh, Thanos actually kind of likes his own gender a lot, so that's... That... Or he's not for whatever, you know, it's... but it's deviant. It's evil. Yeah, so there's... In the Eternals, there's the Eternals, and then there's the Deviants, which are they no, no, are I, evil. I, I, yeah, it's, it's fucking weird. Like I, I, I'm not a big fan not, of the Eternals. We're we're juggling power levels, and uh, many many stories that do juggling power levels have difficulty reconciling what they are. At the very least, Toriyama basically said it's a big universe, and when the universe could be folded together in somebody's palms, he says, "But there's multiple universes. Also, <clears throat> there are twin gods of creation and destruction." And everything dances according to their whims, and they can be—they can actually be bribed with friendship and food. So there's that. Uh, super. That's such a yeah. There's... Because power creep occurs in such a way where you have that there is a a pocket dimension somewhere, or a version of the universe somewhere where there's a power that rivals Goku, and then Goku rises to the challenge, discovers new untapped abilities, and then meets that power and teaches it the the, the meaning of friendship. And that can happen. That's okay. That can all happen. But the risk is, do the do the cosmic gods then say, hmm, we have to keep inventing shit for this guy? Because eventually he will get bored and turn evil, so we'll just have to conjure up whatever is just slightly out of his reach so we can reach for it. It's, it's going like, to be Gohan. Uh, 
it's like uh, Assassin's Creed Valhalla, where the 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 level requirements for all areas is three hundred and forty, and you can go to a level cap of forever. Just keep getting stronger. It doesn't actually matter, but just keep getting stronger. Yeah, I don't know the ending of that game kind of like the the actual super ending, how it explains that uh what the Isu gods did and how they put their minds into the the Aesir gods, and they're actually the the uh, whatever the fuck I just said Isu, and that now you find out Bossum, Bossum, your assassin buddy is actually Loki, that Isu god in that form. And it's like, what the fucking Jesus Christ tap dancing. And you're actually Odin. And what's her name is actually uh Faye or Frigg. And you're just like, God, what the fuck? This is so convoluted. Like this is dumb. Like too much. It's a story turn of the powerful beings wipe their memories for their own sake of preservation to discover themselves again in an endless cycle. Is that new to you? It's not, but Jesus fucking Christ. Where's the surprise? What's the issue? I just didn't like it. That's I'm like, what this is it's it any story like that, it's too goddamn convoluted. Like it does oh my god, it's going around trouble to get to your asshole. Yes. But you have no problem with that storytelling elsewhere, especially Resident Evil. I don't ha- I haven't heard of anybody going and putting their minds into somebody else except one one time. And that's in oh, Revelations too. But actually this whole time Nemesis was Barry's brother. That's why he goes stars because there's an explanation in an obscure novel somewhere or a future game. No, they haven't oh, explained and, and, why Nemesis and, says that yet. The Baron's actually Wesker the whole time, just after a few Twinkies. <laughs> no, if they did that, that would uh, that would kind of upset me. So the degree of investment does not hinge upon any kind of humanity, but rather what a, a delicate balance of power or uh, artful exaggeration. What's the, what's the commitment threshold for you? I just, at certain points, I find it's, I'm about to say silly, but it's just when it gets, when something gets too convoluted on how it has to be explained and how these persons acted the way they acted, it, to me, it just, it doesn't lose me. It just, I find it dumb and lazy writing. You remember the robot chicken sketch that involved the pivotal moment of the Star Wars original trilogy? in The Empire Strikes Back, when uh, Luke fought Darth Vader in Cloud City. Darth Vader struck off his arm, and Luke crawled back against the, the venting shaft. And Vader announced, No, Luke, I am your father. And Luke exclaimed, No, that's impossible! And Vader said, Yes, and Leia is your sister. That's impractical. And the Empire will be defeated by Ewoks. That's improbable. It seems highly unlikely. <laughs> the screen wipes. Oh, and the force is just some tiny bacteria floating in your bloodstream. <laughs> and then Luke crawls back off the ledge and says, "Listen, if you're not taking, if you're not taking this seriously, I'm out of here." Didn't they get that, Mark Hamill to reprise his role for that? They did. It's a great sketch for that purpose alone, and I, I want to make this as the signpost for any time you a praise some dumb bullshit and B, divorce yourself from that some dumb bullshit because the threshold had been crossed. And that applies to me too. This is not unique to anybody else in particular. Just, you're really into something and especially if there's escalation 
you expect the author to or, and the productions companies to de deliver a appreciable gradient of intensity. And then if it falls flat or it becomes a cliff instead of a rising grave, grave curve, uh, you you dip out, you disengage, and you say, "Oh, this doesn't matter anymore." Ah, to an extent, yeah, I do that. Any, you can decide whether the whole thing is dead to you, like a child, or you say, "Wow, you know, this chunk of the story right here, this chunk right here, it's a pretty good chunk. I really dig where things are at this point." And that, that a case within that is, in fact, the Star Wars license of the mainline films. Four, five, and six appear to be pretty good entries in the saga. People like those. Yeah, I like them. Weird. Weird. How come the middle is the good bit? Because they came out first and they set up the rest of it. And then instead of being able to meet that hype, they weren't able to achieve that and screwed everything up. No, no, not mm. Jax. No, that's, that's not it at all. It can't be. I mean, it's 80 years from now. And Disney still exists, and people who are watching this, they're told these films were made in order. Yeah, but Just the writing got really good um, in the middle. <laughs> I don't think that'll ever happen. Where someone's like, oh, these were made in order. No, no because you'll oh, have the internet. Dude, fella. Oh, no. You don't honestly believe that, do you? I hope it would be true. For okay, the Ho hoping. While faulty is far better than it will never happen, my dude. Come on, you you, you can't honestly hold on to that idea. I can. Okay, it's just it'll be extra bitter when it's proven to be untrue, when something that was held as a firm fact based on information that was plain and available um, turns out to be completely not that. You may be right, sir, and I may be wrong, but in eighty years I'll be dead. So. I hope. Again, you're hoping. Yeah, we're all hoping. Although, I mean, <laughs> if somebody's capable enough to write this, it'd be interesting. If somebody could do a immortal story or a vampire story where somebody becomes that like four years from now and then has to realize how am I going to exist in this world of constant deception, misinformation, interlinking, and the death of humanity itself. We don't know. We can only speculate because they're like, oh yeah, Cyberpunk 2077. We have no fucking idea how it's going to actually look. We can just project. Because in the 80s, that's how the future looked, we thought. Do you think in the 20s they expected that? No, they had their Flash Gordon serials. So fiction will keep on changing, and possibly a person like that, we're spitballing here, would collect memorabilia of what timestamps are supposed to be like, so they would just grab up as much fictitious things as they could, you know, comic books, movies, posters, etc. And just keep just have like a catalog of chronological. Okay, now the year is 2066. It was supposed to be like this according to these storylines. That is not what's happening outside. And then just continue on. They'd build a bunker and whatever else happened to the world, they would just keep on stashing it full of lost knowledge that were equally as realistic or fictitious as anything else we're doing. But the good news is that even by the Seventh World War, uh, Marvel will still be going strong. Yes, they'll. They by that time uh, they would have resurrected Stanley and Jack Kirby. So if they don't do that, then you know this. We we use machine learning to to reconstruct 
an AI of uh, actual intelligence of Walt Disney, and it still wants the Jews gone. So I, I didn't know this, and I, I found this little fact, little fact out that uh, Stan once Jack Kirby and uh, I think it's Mike Ditko left Marvel, Stan Lee never created another successful character. And it was isn't that interesting? Yeah, isn't really telling. Stan Lee was like Bob Kane kind of in that aspect. Like everybody else came up with the designs and while they looked like, and he just like he even admitted like, yeah, normally Jack would create the character and write the dialogue and I would edit it some and then it'd be sent out. But he got the credit for it because at the time he was the face of Marvel. So everybody's like, Oh, Stanley created these characters. He helped create characters, but mainly it was Ditko and Kirby. Well, sure. Writers need, need editors to fine tune what they're looking to do. And sometimes if you're the ed editor in chief, well then your photo is going to be in the second page of the magazine or the publishing journal, or whatever the fuck it is. So after a while, when people stop asking questions and paying attention, all they got's a face. So when the names of the other writers or contributors die down, yeah, of course, you've got one face to refer to. All the other writers who are there, their original characters are going to be considered and retained and maybe have some test runs. But you're going to be mostly focused on what brings in the most bread. Meaning... You're focused on, yeah, just can you do me one of them Spider-Man stories, but like mix it up a little. Thanks, champ. Have it on my desk by Thursday. That's essentially what it is. You had about a month because they're yeah. serialized monthly. Sure. And that's one of the, to, to me personally, while it's interesting, it taints whatever emotional connection you can have to characters that need to exist in hand over hand basis. Keep making more of the guy on a schedule. Versus, I just thought of a, well, I thought of like five chapters in this character's life existing. I'm going to write the third chapter, right about in the middle. Oh, people like that. I'm going to write the fourth chapter now. Ooh, they really like that. I'm going to leave them kind of like teasing a little bit. I'm going to go back to the beginning, because now in context, they're going to shape it up better and make it. I'll bridge that gap, and I'm going to land the finale. Cool. What, do you guys want chapter six? I wasn't expecting to write a chapter six. Um, okay, either time travel or he fights the Hulk. He fights the Hulk. So, with, with shit like that, that's where you get the really fun stuff, I suppose, where, well, yeah, Matt, Matt Murdock's initial arc of his origin and existence is finished, but he is in Hell's Kitchen, so he meets Frank Castle and all the others, and he gets to play with the kids in the neighborhood because their original isolated story has been completed. Now they get introduced into the general population of the prison. They're acclimated. Hmm. I'm surprised that hasn't been a story yet. I've always kind of wondered about comics, like, especially with Marvel, they're all in the same city. Do they, like, rock, paper, scissors on who gets what part? Like, hey, I know he's in Hell's Kitchen, but Spider-Man, you, you went into Hell's Kitchen, you violated his territory, you, you now owe the Punisher, like, 30 grand. Like, We're the protectors of the globe! Actually, we just operate in Philly, from this street to this street essentially like you had the fantastic four tower and then like the Avengers tower right down the road. Like, like, so essentially if you're going to invade, which in every comic book, we're going to invade earth by earth. We mean New York city. So we can just automatically be there. No one. And it's going to be one group like, Oh, Hey, look, it's the uh, fantastic fours story arc, but no one else comes to help. The X-Men hey, don't show up. The Avengers don't, normally, don't show up. You don't get the storylines that basically say, Hey guys, uh, 
superheroes friends glad you could attend this meeting listen we didn't know this but for the last 10 days uh, a, a stealth fleet of spacecraft have been hoovering up cattle across canada uh but now that they've basically depleted all of canada's population and their team is clueless they've started to take up some of our wisconsin cows uh can you go solve that please we just didn't have any idea what was happening it wasn't like apocalyptic or whatever but if they're going to take the old world's beef that could be an issue so can we just trouble you real quick to deal with uh space cow rustlers <laughs> that'd be a hell of a story arc <laughs> space cow rustlers well you don't it doesn't sound sexy maybe initially but the idea is you're fighting per perhaps the opponent is aware that flying men with laser eyes exist whatever version of that is there and they say listen let's not pick the fight i i can see where their vision cone is i can Hire some mercenaries to make some big destructions. I'm going to blow up a skyscraper. Go get the cows. I'm quietly winning off to the side while you're saying, oh, yes, the world has been saved. What do you mean inflation? Huh? <laughs> Tariffs? No, oh, I'm flying away. I don't care about that shit. Can you help build the wall? What? No. Superman. Superman. There's a com computer chip shortage. Can you help? Uh, I could stare at them. Could, I can fly shipping containers pretty fast. Does that help you? Exactly. It will exactly help out. Tons. Superman, Superman, the ever given turned sideways in a critical shipping lane. No, y'all can fix that one on your own. <laughs> that needs to be a hell of a what if story. What if all the cows were abducted by cattle rustlers? Well, maybe. Not all, but it's it's this weird thing where you say this is a global protection agency, but it lives in fantasy U.S. And there are certain sovereign borders they can't cross without diplomatic permission. And if you fly in there without the U.N. saying, you trigger a global political disaster. So we can't stop you, but we're asking you real nice not to do that. And if you don't comply, we're cutting power to the Avengers Tower. And if you fire up that arc generator that runs the whole thing, we are going to lambast your asses for using non-patented technology on U.S. soil, and then we're going to ruin you financially. Um, this shoots all of us in the foot, but I'm asking you to play nicely because you're still conform. You still technically have passports for citizenship IDs. Stuff like that. Yeah. Oh dear God. Is it? Is it? Is it dumb? Sure, but it's interesting. Is it deal with mundane human politics? Yeah, because we can't figure out how to codify, um, how to really deal with cross-pollination of, of the fermentation and pasteurization process. So let's instead pretend that there are super buff men flying around in pajamas solving big problems. Hmm. It, little things. Like mozzarella is not, a, not <laughs> legally allowed to be imported into Russia. Do you know that? I did not. Why? I don't know the specific details, but the government effectively had said, no, we can't have this here. We have local cheeses. There's actually uh, Justice Walker. He has had a channel for forever on YouTube. He's, had a, he, he's a guy that came over on a missionary, uh, well, a Christian mission, and he stayed behind. His name is Justice Walker, and he speaks Russian. He's made a farm somewhere out there in the Urals, and he, I, I'd heard once he had a, a plan. He said he wrote a book. The secret to getting rich, very, 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 very slowly. But interesting fella. The idea being he sells mozzarella. It's not imported. He just finds a way to treat local cheese with uh, aging and process to make a very good facsimile. 
So that's a great local resource, Russian mozzarella, if you want. But that's a specific and absurd and abstract example to where you say, we can get superheroes to fix this. Actually, you could probably get a series of geologists, a couple of botanists, um, maybe a lawyer or two. You could probably work this out. If somebody funds the whole deal, of course. At the end of the day, crazy things that you never thought you would hear. Of course. Which is why it's very difficult for me anymore to just flatly offer any amount of worship to manifested hopes and dreams as portrayed by physiological and ideological dreams that we project onto characters. As opposed to ideas like, yeah, powers happen and the world has to deal with that to keep itself in check. Because uh, it's a bad subject, I suppose. But if you have something happens at a local tenement, movies do this or stories do this with non-branded characters because they're allowed to have stakes and die. There was this okay film that I think it was on Netflix called Project Power, which is basically... It's big pharma discussion, but by way of take this pill, it may unlock your genome and give you powers for a duration of time. But if you had some sort of sabotage operation where an opportunist had released a mutagenic agent in a specific tenement in the projects that everybody got a, a dose of, whether they want to or not, and you get a battle royale situation where the, the everyone freaks out and starts to experience new abilities and very quickly um, everyone's pressured to fighting each other, how would the, the Justice League respond to that? Would they try to quarantine everybody? Would they try to swoop in and say, never mind, citizens, don't fear, we're here. And then the people who are not busy murdering each other would say, well, thank fuck you showed up. We've been here the entire time. We were too poor to have you help us. It, and it gets a little bit too real and uncomfortable after that, right? Just slightly. And they go, oh, do we have anybody local? Do we have any local constabulary or like some other deputies? Anybody have any low-tier powers, a class 3 powers, like really strong air currents, or possibly a siren mouth? No? No wee-woos? Okay, well, I, mean, I, I can level the building, but I don't know how that helps them. <laughs> Shit like that. Where's literacy man? Where's the dude who basically gets flown around on a charter jet in a, uh, a subscription list of government services or private services from private schools where he basically just he has to form a circuit by touching your forehead and your genitals and go, and then you suddenly get perfect comprehension, reading, memory, recall, English, to a certain degree. Right. Can't go, can't go full-on genius, but he can take somebody who won't or can't make sense of modern information and just snap that brain into condition. So immediately rewire things on your limbic and your uh, medullar level. Where your brain just goes, oh shit, this makes sense now. And you're just a, a more capable human being on touch. And how much do you gouge for that? And how much does the man get involved saying, well, can you also plant a political agenda in there? And the dude says, no. No, I don't do that. I just, I make it perfectly literate. Oh, well, if I pay you a percentage, can you try? Sure, I can try. And so this fucker just gets uh, hustles across the nation private school to private school to eventually, hopefully public schools. Just, okay, everyone line up. Yes, I'm going to touch your forehead and your balls. But that's, you, your parents signed you up. I take no pleasure in this. Just let's do the thing. Like your, uh, your, your assassin sensei in Hunter Hunter. He doesn't get off on it. It's just he found a way to make a living and that's his 9 to 5 and he hates it. But it pays. So here we are. 
Let's 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 not break up that show anymore, dear God. I'm still. Well, we just let's let's write that story arc. Well, can we have that web comic or put that in print in the trades? I mean, it's a very you know, it's kind of a a cutting commentary on. Oh, you guys don't like that? Okay, we'll just go back to costumed heroes with with cool gadgets and powers then. Yeah, it's the only thing that sells, man. Is listen, if the guy I just brought up was around and he let people read and think for themselves, that would ship wouldn't sell nearly as well. I'm just telling you that right now. No, no, nowhere near close. I mean, I understand that it's just the current iteration of the age old myths we tell ourselves. Because of certain property rights, we can't actually have Samson within the Justice League and such, but you know, it's it's okay. We can work with allegory, we can lie to ourselves. I would... Well, I don't know. They could have Samson in there. He's technically you can't copyright mythical figures. Depends on who you ask. Who holds the rights? How do you own the rights to mythical figures? Establish a church and say our shit's canon, your shit's not. Oh, okay. I guess that's why they, they don't ever use Jesus in any of the things. Nope. They um they usually have to use other workarounds. They use Superman instead. You see, it's metaphorical. It's metaphorical because hope and faith and salvation travel at the speed of thought, as does this person. But only the Hebrew interpretation thereof, not 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 the other one. Ah, gotcha. Okay. Just we had to establish that, right? Just to make sure. I mean, can you imagine? Well, you can't socialism, but still, can you imagine crops of people growing up for a hundred and forty years when they were given all the same morals? and values of a organized society that could be described charitably through most organized religious texts, but without the flavoring, without name dropping, without specific myths, because those stories are very effective because that's what we that's that's what helps our human memory is to have characters we can attribute things to. To say, oh and then this disciple had the following power set. And this disciple had the following power set. And this one had syphilis, don't be like this guy. And then and you just sort of you, you have enough writing and, and repetition to ingrain it in yourself and you cement that ship with song and you feel really good when you sing together as a, as a body of people you feel really motivated um, if we make it completely neutral and sterile somehow so that the morals stick but no one has an established headcanon of and these were the events you just say it has always been and then somebody says well how could it, how's it possible that these have always been they just they, they have them sing harder while they whip them and then the individual retains the information perfectly. And this, this, this goes on for a while, long enough that people look at any prior uh, flavor of running an organized society under your chosen deity with those precepts and the uh, songs. And they just look at that and say, well, I can't, I can't engage that information. I, I get what it's going for, but I can't let that into my heart. Would 140 years be long enough to basically drown out lingering hatreds from people if you could capture enough and throw them into the render box where a, a, a cloned army of the head ball guy just goes bzz, 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 over and over and makes them able to receive the information. If you sterilize humanity in this fashion that they all accept the idea, do you think that the monomyth and such, if that storytelling would still reemerge like a natural error within a uh, system? It, it will. And not to, not to cut off and slightly get off topic here, uh, when you said, like, oh, people are whipping them, I was like, oh, yeah, like flatulation. I'm like, wait, no, no flagellation. Slightly two different things there. 
Well, sometimes when you get whipped, you fart. Yeah. Makes sense to me. I mean, but you can't whip them by farting them on them. So, you know, it's slightly different. Well, if it's something you found, find to be arousing or satisfying, and you're willing to place yourself before someone else to have them fart on you to get off on that, then I would imagine if that person were to then leverage that service against you, you would be whipped by farts. I guess. That's one way of looking at it. That's why I come around to give you these ideas. For you to go, that's bizarre. I don't like this. Let's please change subjects. And I may have one for you, actually. Yeah. Outside of superheroes and other kinds of nonsense, because Marvel's What If is distressing to me. It's it's about as intellectually nourishing as TikTok. How about that? Yeah, I'd agree with that. How about something that we're going to have to do in the declared but not specific future, which is to play a very certain game? What game is that, sir? Well, it's the game that creates enormous confusion in the branding of our channel. That'd be Resident Evil, but go on. What game is this? I'm still, I'm still kind of curious. Well, this game is called Grime. Ah, uh, yes. And the series could be called Grime the Game on Grime and Game. Hold on here. I'm looking it up because I haven't... I've heard about the game, and every time we type in our uh, name on there, is a fast, unforgiving action-adventure RPG in which you crush your foes in lo with living weapons. Living weapons, wow. That mutate from... and function. That mutate from... Oh, excuse me. Mutate form and function, and then consume their remains with a black hole to strengthen your vessel as you break apart a world of anatomical intrigue. Actually, that's pretty cool. It's not Dead Cells. But it's like Dead Cells. And I've never played that one. The game looks perfectly fine on its own. I think that it's something you could hang with and be frustrated by, much like Hades. But the potential of Grime the game on Grime and Game tickles me just the right way. It does too, slightly for me. Not saying we'll do it any kind of justice, but at the very least, it's attaching words together. <laughs> It is. It's attaching a lot of words together. It's, it's a cross-promotion, really. Yeah. Let, let's see here. Hold on. Let's see how much it is in the Steam store. 25 bucks. Really? Uh-huh. Vigil and Grime Bundle, $42. Now, there, there, there is a game I want to I wanna pick up that we've been talking about recently on my computer because, uh, you know, my fucking Elgato capture card went out. Uh, and it, it's a, a game that... Uh, We've mentioned in this uh, podcast, uh, Resident Evil 3 Remake. Uh, I want to play it because uh, I want to show people the game. Because when we do our podcast, if you guys are listening on Spotify or any, wherever you get your podcast from in audio form, uh, I want to show them that and how uh, well, I'll have to play it from the get-go. Because like I said, when I played it on my Xbox, it was uh, I already played it nine times and completely stomped the mud hole in it and had all the un almost all the unlocked infinite ammo weapons. So from the beginning to end with no infinite ammo unlocks, but it's to me when I play it, I'm going to be so disappointed at the same time because I know where all the jumps are at and everything. So I'm just going to be like, well, there, here he comes. Oh, nope, didn't die. Oh, got away. You can pretend. 
I could pretend. You could be like a, like an influencer and just go, wow, I didn't see that coming. Wow. Yeah, I can't fake. I can't fake it. It'd be then too- you can take the Chip Cheesum LP version of the Let's Play formula, by which, by the time they're playing the game as an LP, the lead knows the game and is talking through and around it in an informative fashion. And this is not true for every single thing that they do, but I have very fond memories of their Metal Gear Rising LP, where in the middle of the boss fight, and it's post-recorded footage, so at this point the speaker and their impressionable co-host can just look at the footage instead of hitting buttons, but you have highly competent gameplay, and they're discussing things like, you see how this boss is big and stompy? What the game doesn't tell you is that you're actually able to run through and parry the missiles using the uh, just a simple buttonhole like this, so it's actually less stressful than you think it is. And uh, when it's about to step on you, that should be a big problem, but actually if you just use the parry in this window, you can strike its foot away from your body, completely scot-free. See how the tail whip's coming up? You can just sever that tail. And then the co-host just is losing their shit going, oh my god, this is I can't believe you can do that! So just the calm, confident tone of casually commentating over a game you've conquered previously. I don't know. Right now, I've also just noticed that uh, Assassin's Creed Odyssey is on sale for 15 bucks, so that's kind of... might be another game I might drop on this channel. If you ever want to get fodder for visuals for Grimecast, that is a fantastic game to do that with, because there is very, very, very little material of consequence in that game. Oh, there, I, you were correct. I say this having 100%ed it. Really? Yeah. I did about 25, then I stopped playing, and that was about 20 hours in. I did the work. I put in the work. If I missed anything, at the very least, it's 100% based on the trophy system. Maybe there are a couple things that I missed, but that includes the Platinum for the core game, and every bit of DLC reward markers, as well as a few private things for myself. For example, on the western side, southwest of the map, close to the Gulf of Sparta, there's a mountain range. Mm-hmm. And the mountain range. At the very top, there's a sword planted in the ground. And I thought, oh, this is very specific. I wonder what this relates to. Nothing. No quest, no event, no reference that I found takes you to the top of that peak to the sword that's there. That's incredibly underwhelming. Did cool things happen? Yes. But right around hour 20, you think to yourself, okay, well, let's let's land the shit turd. There's got to be a point to all this. And there's a couple, there are three endings, and you get to them in different rates, and one of them is kind of satisfying, and the other two just happen in sequence. And that's, uh, you can decide whether you do that before or after the post-game. The post-game being the current Assassin's Creed uh, cycle best parts, which is all the supernatural stuff. The Egyptian, the Greek, and the uh, Norse, I suppose. Or Finnish, maybe. For Valhalla. But it's not allowed yet, is the problem. The game is enormous, and it's too long, and there's more shit coming out. So, uh, if you commit yourself to playing Assassin's Creed Odyssey, Chucks, uh, you will be able to play it on and off again for the foreseeable future. If you don't get bored and say, I'm done. I just like the the mythological things of it, like Inca Poseidon's Trident, Hercules Club. Those are the ones I started looking for. I stopped playing oh. the game and was just like, I'm just going to get all the special weapons. And that's what I did when I owned the game at like 15 hours in. So I spent the last five hours like, I'm just going to get all the mythical weapons that I can without having to fight a boss. And then I'm going to go from there. 
and okay. I and I did. But you and didn't then, hit cap level. I didn't. I was like, so when I got, uh, you had to fight like high level lions. I can't remember what it is. Uh, you get a weapon from there. I think it's a hammer or an axe. And uh, I just ran in. I'm like, well, I don't have to fight them. So I grabbed the, I grabbed the weapon and got the fuck off the island. I'm like, well, that was pointless. I didn't have to fight anything. Same with Poseidon's Trident. You had to fight higher level sharks. I just swam down, grabbed the damn thing, and swam back up and got the hell out of there. I'm like, sure. Like this, this, this doesn't feel like these weapons are so special, like the way they're hyped up to be. Like these are really special weapons. You should be, you know, you gotta. It's a struggle to get them. No, well, they're I, not. They're not. I'm like they're, the best weapons in the game are the ones with the highest number attached. Unfortunately, there are good looking ones, and there are specific individual weapons that have flavor attached. But the game demands you continue to play it, and much like Borderlands, unless you roll a higher level version of that gun that you like so much, you have to put the gun down. Because yeah. as cool as it is, the numbers aren't stacking up. Let's not forget that in this game, unlike Origins, there is a level tether to keep things tense. So if you hit the maximum toppity toppest level in the game, post-DLC, the game will still spawn mercenaries that are higher level than you are just to keep things exciting. I noticed that. Like I struggled with some of the mercenaries and uh I did I did like that aspect of it. Like it made it harder no matter what you did. Um Yeah, that that's good for like ten hours. The game yeah. lasts for about eighty. Yeah. So I, I I did the wrong thing and went about it the wrong way, but yeah, you are correct. Um, but I, I want to hop into something that we were talking about. So I did mention that if you guys are listening to us in audio form, we also carry a YouTube channel. That's what we mean when we say the channel. Um, if you guys are, like I said, listening to us in audio form, if you want to watch us play video games, it's the same as our Google podcast name and same as the Spotify name. It's Grime and Games. So if you guys want to catch us there, you can definitely do that. If you guys want to catch us on Twitch, it's the same thing on there uh, if you guys want to watch a stream. So just let us know, and if we're on there and you guys catch us, just tell us what you guys want us to what you want us to play, and we'll. Well, I do. Most of the time, it's I believe it's me streaming. I think me and you've streamed a couple games together. We have mostly yeah. cooperative things, but you went on a very firm Resident Evil kick, and the only way I can participate is tune in occasionally and say, "Oh yeah, still in a shitty Louisiana swamp." Nice. No, cool. no, no. I was I was I'll in a shitty in Romanian hours. town. Well, that was the most recent. Sure. Yeah, I did play seven though on stream, and I I think I posted it on the channel, but I don't remember. Just just big old chunks of vlogs. Here's the next four hours of Chuck's future. Enjoy, enjoy, and just shit talk me the whole time. Like you should have done it this way. Like uh, yeah, I probably should have, but I didn't. I do things. I Frank Sinatra the shit out of everything. I do it my way, motherfuckers. If it works for you, please own it. I think this we... is therapy for you. I think that's uh, the the one thing we mentioned last time, uh, my philosophy on games, movies, and everything. However, you have to enjoy it. Enjoy it. If you and you, you just you just confess to countering that philosophy with saying, "Yeah, I played the uh, I played Odyssey the wrong way. I didn't have a lot of fun." Yeah, so I got to find the right way to play it. There is no right way. Whatever's fun for you. Exactly. So you got to I got to find the right way for myself. Is what I'm saying. I got to find the way that makes me enjoy the game. Does that mean getting all the the super badass weapons at the you know at level ten when the most the enjoyable way for you to play the game is to open up YouTube and say uh, Assassin's Creed Odyssey all cutscenes and just watch that. I've actually did that for a game once, Mortal Kombat, because I'm not very good at it and I can't ever beat the final boss. 
So I uh, I just watched the cutscenes to see what happened. That's valid. Yeah, I was just like, oh, well, whatever. Well, I'll hope it works. And so I, I, I played them. I haven't played them a lot recently. I haven't played the last two a whole lot. I own 11. I don't own 10. But I, uh, I played for like an hour, and I was like, all right. And I gave it to my little brother. I'm like, here you go. You can enjoy. Because he plays more fighting games than I do. You didn't just turn it into a spectator blood sport? I didn't. You could just set up your, your characters using AI pre-builds and equip them and just watch them beat the piss out of each other on screen. And I then they unlock that. all new cosmetics. You just put them on and say, whoa, look, a new mouthpiece or a new jacket or a new weapon. Wow, keep doing the things. I could, it's very unengaging, but, but you get stuff for it. It's the most economical way, actually, to grind stuff. Yeah, Very popular. I don't know if I could do that, though. That wouldn't be me. I'd, after a while, I'd be bored myself and probably fall asleep. Yeah. You just have to be awake enough to hit the next button over and over. Just keep <laughs> fighting. Keep, yeah. keep fighting, peon. Keep fighting. Just, just you, you can do it. I have faith. If only you would have built me better, Father, I would know how to zone. But as it stands, mer. <laughs> oh, shit. Psychonauts 2 pre-purchase on computer. You are welcome to make questionable investments at any point in time, so long as you can pay the margin call. I don't know. I don't. Like I said, it comes out on Xbox. I'm going to play it first on there and see how it is. I just I don't feel like it's uh, paying money right now for a game that hasn't, you know, the its original version came out like 15, 16 years ago. I just, I don't know. So it's like, let me see that's, how they did. That's not a fair comparison. Well, no, it's not. But I, I just want to see what they did. Double Fine's done some good games. Very good games. Isn't there a free demo? No, not yet. Mm, okay, my mistake. I don't know when it comes out. Hold on here. Let me find out when Psycho Nuts 2 comes out. I hear that the new Aliens Fire Team Elite coming out soon on August 23rd. Today-ish. Uh, it's pretty good. Psycho Nuts, Psycho Nuts 2 comes out in two days. Hmm. Alien Team Elite? I think I just saw that. Aliens Fire Team Elite. That was Doom. I'm sorry. I was off. Or was it on? Or is it already on sale? No, it's not. I was say it's kind of nuts if they two days in. Are you going to play... Oh, today's deal. One Punch Man. A hero nobody knows is only $9. $10, excuse me. That's... Yes. The rapidly stamped Here's Your Shonen License tie-in game is $10. You want it to be good. It does not mean it will be. It will just portray characters you may be invested in, and that is exactly how they hook you, because fandom is infectious. You chemically bond to the stuff that you feel represents you, and you will rapidly attack anybody who's got anything bad to say. Unless, of course, you live long enough, and you sober up a little, and you realize, oh man, I really got to temper that shit. There's been a recent development, I don't know if you know, there's been a surge of 40k fans, Warhammer 40k fans, fleeing the license and transitioning over to Battletech. Did you know about this? I did not. Why? Because of Games Workshop activity. Uh -oh. I think I might have brought this up before. The notion is pretty simple. Uh, Games Workshop that has been constantly abusing its fandom and overcharging for its figurines, 
and making it incre increasingly difficult to purchase the armies you want to have and keep them because we have to keep on rolling out new rules and restrictions, it got more aggressive when it comes to fan material, fan content. If they can't buy you out, they'll shut you down. So the previous story, that was months, months old, six months ago, Games Workshop bought out the creator of Astartes. And everyone loved Astartes, this short web series, CG series by one guy, fan series, on YouTube. Uh, people said, good, at, la at last, he's well, Games Workshop hired this man, this is great. But now other projects that don't want to bend the knee and be independent are being hit within, uh, with cease and desists and legal action because only the House of Mouse-like behavior can carry Games Workshop into the future. So it's company practices that are drifting further away from whatever the creative core was and instead attempting to squeeze their fans further and further. And to be fair, the fandom itself has gradually been expanding and attracting uh, even more problematic people. Oh shit! It's you should like what you should, what you like, and you should be able to get along with people that share your interest. But you remember the mindset? Maybe you still exist in that mindset in some places. I certainly do. Where whatever kindness, fairness, and tolerance exists within you, just evaporate. When you go, no, fuck you, you're fucking, you suck, oh my god. That shouldn't be the case. And yet, every now and then, you just have this real close to your heart relationship with a property that defined you for a time. And then you lose your mind, and you start attacking folk. Or telling them how it ought to be. Now, I mean, I'm, I'm frequently vocally critical, and I'll be able to say, yeah, I know you like what you like, but have you considered the following? And somebody asked me actually very recently, well, you know, Brow, why, why are you even bothering people? They should be able to like whatever they like. I say, yeah, this, this is true, but I want them to do the homework first. I want them to consider what's available so that if, for example, in the world of beers, they have a starting point and they linger around the starting point, and I'll be able to introduce them to various varieties just to have a sampler and taste and share experiences and develop their palate once they've done their homework of experiencing what types there are, they have the option to return to their great-tasting, refreshing Miller Lite Gross. at the end of the day. But they can choose that if they can articulate their argument and if they've given it a chance to other things beyond a cursory glance. And I might say, I can't stand where you stand. I don't feel the same way, but I appreciate your time and courage for even having attempted to broaden yourself. And they might even say, you know, here's a Saison, here's a farmhouse ale, here's a brown nut ale, here's a lager, etc., etc. I've tasted all these things, and having found that there's a brave world out there, the great taste of Miller Lite is still where I want to hang out. I cannot access that decision myself, but I've seen due diligence offered to the project, so I accept their decision. Maybe they'll change, maybe they won't, but they gave me enough trust to try. So, if somebody might say, yeah, I understand the fandom is basically cancerous, and a lot of bad shit's been done with the company, but that's the hill I want to die on. This is my company, and that's how I want it to go. Okay. If you're being considerate, if you're broadening your horizons in, in as much as you care to, but diligently within that, then you can persist wherever you can afford or draw enjoyment from. 
I will still advocate the things that I enjoy, but I won't say this is better instead of your thing. Instead, I'll say this thing resembles what you like. This is one more flavor of what you already enjoy. You would benefit by experiencing it. Is that fair? Yeah, that's fair. I get that. I don't think I have anything that I, any game or any show that I'm sitting there like, I would argue with somebody with over like being so upset about like, no, I mean, this is how it has to be done. Like, like I get other people's opinions. Like, yeah, I'm a diehard Resident Evil fan, but if somebody came in with a different opinion, I'm like, yeah, I would say something different, but Hey, you know what? They each their own in the long haul. Somebody says, nah, ah, nah, ah, evil within is better. That's their opinion. But the message is, no, no, fuck your thing and mine is cooler. Eh, depends. Well, no, no, it doesn't depend. The, the The message stated at you is, your thing is invalid, and my thing replaces it. As opposed to, I acknowledge your thing, I think I understand why you like it, I'm really glad you're enjoying the thing, my thing resembles your thing, and this is what I know, and this is what I enjoy. We could trade and cross-pollinate, or just I'll just leave this on the table. If you were to try this thing that I have and draw satisfaction from it, I'd really like the conversation. And I'll try your thing. I just if if anything is to happen here, could you try my thing first? And your response is Yes. Okay. As opposed to no, your thing sucks, my thing cool. Yeah, Which is we're back to the sixth grade thing, and that's how the bully ends up being suicidal and yeah, it's a full circle. Yeah, it's a full circle in the long haul. I'm just not one of those people, man. I'm not like, hey. My thing is better than your thing. Okay, well, that's your opinion. Let me find out. Why do you like it so much? Let me find out why. I, I think... You don't rebalance the conversation to say, why do you say it like that? I do. You can just say, I really like my thing. I do. I ask them, like, oh, tell me, tell me, about, tell me about what it is that you like so much about it. And then they proceed. Oh. oh, no. I just like it. Exactly. Well, then tell me about it. It's good. <laughs> it's, it's, it's good. It's a good thing. That's what you do, Chucks. It is. I do that a lot. Good news, bro. I just finished War and Peace. Fantastic. How was it? It was okay. <laughs> Jesus. How many pages did it take you to figure that out? Oh, all of them. Two pages in. Two I arrived at my opinion about Chapter 2. I maintained my opinion through Chapter 400. I, uh... See, you're wrong, though, and I have to tell you why you're wrong. It's because I would never read War and Peace. I would listen to War and Peace. Mm -hmm. And I'd just be okay. like, okay. We're changing page count to hours spent listening. You spent 30 hours listening to War and Peace? I did. And what do you think of it? Well, it took me six months to finish the 30 hours, so uh, I only remember the last chapter and a half, so uh, it was okay. Fuck the landing. It's all I know. <laughs> I did a backflip, and I stopped watching right as they started running to do the backflip, and then when they landed, I was like, oh, good landing. Good job. Golf clap. He went for the flip, and in the middle of the flip, an ad came on, and I closed the window. <laughs> so he was just stuck midair the whole time. Well, it's it's Schrodinger's ending, you know? It's it's, it's finished, and it's not finished, and I, 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 can't, I can't live with myself if he fucks it up, so I'm just going to leave it at the happy place that we'll see. And then somebody goes to spoil it for you and you shoot them in the mouth. I would never shoot them in the mouth. No? Not ever? Not even for a legally defensible for you to do so. 
And the bailiff handed you the gun? Nope. Okay. Well, perhaps, sir, you're a better man than I. Uh, I, tr I, I try to improve myself daily, but not with all success. Aside from Assassin's Creed Odyssey, is there anything else in your radar that you want to pick up and toy with? Um, not until, uh, God damn, Age of Empires comes out. Uh, there's nothing there in that. November is the month for me right now. Like, there's uh, Age of Empires and then Total War, Warhammer 3 comes out, and I want to see how they do with that. Well, um, I didn't say what's coming up that's new releases, because, again, there's a, a cosmos of perfectly good games that have been released for a while and are probably at very decent prices. There probably are, but here's the thing. It's football season coming up, college football, so I've been playing a lot of college football recently, and so a lot of games have been put on the back burner. Okay. I'm such a dire... When, when college football season hits, I play college football a ton. And then I put it down for like four months and then pick it back up. They call it something else. Some other category. I don't know. Let, let, me, let me see... Let me see something here. Because you could totally get someone who is a prospect for football and they don't go to the college. But that doesn't matter. They'll find some loophole to get them in. It's like a weigh-in. It's as honest as a weigh-in. How about that? How does that hit you? Uh, I mean, yeah, you're technically right. I mean, it, I just enjoy the competitiveness of the sport. And so... A bunch of people smashing into each other to throw a ball down the field is fun to me for some reason. And I was it, thinking about that recently as well as an abstraction of actual civil violence. That's why sports exist. Yeah. I mean... It's, it's exciting. Go ahead. It's exciting, but there's... there's I, it, some sports, occasionally, maybe when the ball keeps moving. So international football and hockey, for example, there's a longer amount with the scoring object in play. I prefer that to rapid setups and resets. I was actually watching a video about hockey and they were talking about how, not hockey, excuse me, soccer or football for uh, everybody else in the world. And they were talking about how football was originally done by you would start in the middle of two towns and you would have to kick the ball to the other church or city hall or town center. And that's how the game was ended. But it was just a clusterfuck of people, and people got hurt because you could tackle and stuff. And then over time, they had to make rules because it was becoming too disorderly and riots were breaking out. So I'm like... Oh, sure, but mob football sounds pretty good. It we'll, does. we'll trample children to get to the ball. Essentially, yeah. I was like, oh, damn, that's how it was played? Like, that sounds pretty entertaining, but how long did it take is the question. Until you had too few players left to play. Just finally giving up like an hour and a half in. Fuck it. Kick the ball into the goddamn town hall. I'm done. Well, you can't. The, the ball is getting snagged in all the bodies. This is getting too awkward. Well, that and on top of it, it was made out of a, a, a pig intestine or goat intestine. Wrapped around with cloth of some sort. Yeah, but it's like rubber bands. You can make a very dense ball out of that eventually. Yeah, sooner or later. Pig's guts. It's a great medium. It is indeed. Oh, shit. so nothing, nothing really for you outside of college football. Okay. Uh, I I might look at uh, what's on Game Pass here in the next 
two hours because I need to hook up my 360, uh, unhook my 360 and see what's on there. Cause I still got to play man eater and I want to see if it's actually fun, but my, uh, Xbox one's been messing up too. It's not working right. In what way? It doesn't load. Won't load certain games. Like I wanted to play Hydro Thunder. If anybody's ever played that great game, even in arcade and on 64 or any other system, uh, certain games won't load. So I got to figure out what's going on. I'd say that the version of the game that involves a plastic controller, not a controller, but a whole mount, like a maquette of a bike or a boat, probably the best version of the game. So the home port is fun, but if you get to saddle and grip some handlebars and vroom vroom in a mock fashion, isn't that just the best version of the whole experience? I would say yes, sometimes. But maybe, I maybe you get sick very easily. It's true. If you yeah. spew over the, the dash, it's not great. I, I I took my kids, my youngest, for a birthday to Rigby's, uh, a a family fun center close to where I live, and uh, it's a like a how would I put this? It's like an old DJ's Discovery Zone, or I'm trying to think uh, what was up there. Uh, that fam- the family fun center. I think it's like the Tequila Family Fun Center that's close by, uh, and. My oldest just wanted to do like snowboard. It's not snowboarding, excuse me. Like uh, jet, not jet skis. God, what are they called? Snowmobile and uh, motorcycle racing games. And I had to help her because she couldn't like move it. But it it was fun. It was more fun for me helping her and seeing her enjoy that game than it was me ever playing it. If you go fast enough, a snow machine can be a jet ski for a couple of seconds. It can be. It, but. Like watching the fun is better. Have you ever seen like, not in counting Twitch or anything, but have you ever seen somebody enjoy something so much while you're helping them, but not really helping them, and seeing the excitement they have when they win, or do really well? A that, little here and there, not not commonly. I mean, I, that's essentially every time she did that, she almost won every race. She almost or got second, and just seeing the excitement she had, you know it. I guess being a parent is kind of the thing, like seeing that enjoyment in your kid's face at that moment. It just that was so more. Just skip to. Just skip to. You ever been a parent? <laughs> well, not yet, but I'll just say it. Sure, I can see why that's appealing. Yeah, I, well, for parents out there who are listening, that was fun to me. That was more fun, like I said, than playing the game. And then with her learning how to play the games that I'm now picking up and seeing the enjoyment I had at her age, and she's not as good as I was at that age but she really never got to play video games that much um, <laughs> growing up because it was she played on her iPad, but when she found games, she, she took to it. And because I worked so much, she never really got to play with me. Yeah. But seeing the enjoyment in your kid's face when they pick up a controller or something and they just, as a child, when somebody else did it to you, you're just kind of like, yeah, whatever. But for her, that excitement was like, cool, I'm glad to see you're having fun with something that I enjoy too. Mm-hmm. If you're very lucky, in a couple of years, might get cooperative. I might be. It might be able to one day. I tried having her play Lego Super uh, Marvel superheroes, and she couldn't really get it. So mm. I don't know. I might find it because right now Pokemon's not multiplayer, and so I never will it ever will be. No, it will not. The entire purpose is to divide the fan base into the haves and have-nots. How could you have cooperation within that? You can't. It's impossible, sir. Pokemon is bourgeois. 
but she she enjoys that and so she and so my youngest also started like she saw me play and she's like can i can i play and i'm like why the hell not go ahead that kid raise her eyebrows and go no why would you <laughs> stupid no I, I i let her have the controller she's but the whole time it was daddy what, what, what button what how do i do this and i'm like okay well you gotta hit this button and that was fun because my, my dad played games with me, but he never showed me how to play games. So it was one of those things. Like if it was an Atari game, you might be able to show me like, yeah, you see the stick of this one button. That's all you got to do. But uh, he uh, he never did that with me. So doing that with them, it's like, this is kind of cool. Think of it this way. If everything goes well and the family remains within contact and close proximity within the next 10 years, whenever the next technological surge happens, that whole conversation will take place, but it'll be reversed. It will. Like, what, 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 what? No, Dad, Dad, please. Come on. Dad, please. Just fucking stop moving your body, please. <laughs> How do I work it? It's motion activated. Why is it motion activated? That makes no fucking sense. Oh, I have Dad, a, I had on a the connect. fridge, you have to blink at it. I had to connect, so. Dad, <laughs> you have to wiggle your left nostril. <laughs> what? <laughs> Okay, okay, time for a timeout. You're getting overstimulated. We gotta like, no, I can get it. I can get it. I can just fucking leave me alone. I can figure this out. <laughs> that's that's the one thing I think I liked about the Wii when so young. Even old people could play it. So you could play against your grandfather in bowling and kick his ass because in real life you never would happen. Yeah, that's that's true. It's a strong facsimile of real life owning or getting owned by grandpa. <laughs> Uh, I learned the hard way not to fuck with people uh, in sports like bowling and pool because I was like, yeah, I can, I'm can. i pretty decent at pool. And he's like, oh, really? Follow me, asshole. Oh, shit. Went to play pool against him? No. Nah. Didn't even get a fucking chance to get on the damn table. As long as I'm not using my unpracticed body and limbs, I'm decent at pool. But that's the problem, isn't it? Just because your brain says, okay, if I hit it at this angle with a little bit of spin, it's going to bank off of there, I clip this ball, and they'll both sink. Good. Okay, I got it figured out. I got the momentum. Fantastic. Hands, do what I thought. Gotcha. Slip. Exactly. What the fuck is that? Well, I, I tried it. Okay, how many hours is it going to take for you to get this? I don't know. 700? Mm. I'm going to concede. I have some more pizza. <laughs> oh, I would say pool's a fun game to play if you're drinking with friends, because if none of your friends know how to play and you don't know how to play and you just go out there and have fun and shit talk each other, it's a fun game. Same with uh, bowling. It's the same concept for me. You have a couple beers and laugh and play, play that while you know you all suck. It's okay. There's a flavor I really enjoy that I don't get very often, which is I like getting schooled in a table sport like that, by which I mean to say, if I have a game with someone, and it becomes very quickly apparent that their skill level eclipses mine in a desperate fashion, and they want to keep playing with me. I'll make the attempt, I'll make mistakes, they'll capitalize on those, on those mistakes. They might slow down, they probably won't, because winning still feels good. So then, instead of trying to play the game to win, I'm going to start tracking the various techniques and variables that are besides muscle memory, and play in a either sloppy or unpredictable fashion to see what I can learn from their adjustment to my non-standard plays. Because if you're playing to win, maybe let's say there's three tiers of awareness of how to get there, and there's the clearly best answer to most situations. So if I can 
track that this is a best answer moment and they give a third, fourth, fifth, or sixth best answer, that's going to throw them off their game. And I'll get to discover things about the game that they wouldn't be able to tell me verbally because it's so ingrained in their limbs. Hmm. I've never thought of it that way. Because they're not going to teach me. They're going to either crush me and walk away or get bored and walk away. Or like play along a little bit cat and mouse style, but they just go, okay, listen, I'm going to take this out of the misery. But if I engage them by, oh, well, I don't know what's happening, but I can respond to this, that gives me more to grapple onto, and I have a decent time with the given that I will not be a points-based winner at any point in this exchange. But I'm going to have a decent time, and I'll learn a thing or two. But to do that, i got to fuck with a champ a little bit. If that maybe it doesn't maybe you're just going I, I don't understand you have to win no but for real you, you have to win you must win no I don't when I play pool or I play any sport sport drinking I don't I don't look at it to win if I'm playing with friends I don't look at it to win now, if I'm playing like my a buddy of mine who lives in Vegas and like Madden or something, yeah, we play to win. But like pool, nah, I'm. It's more I'm more there to have fun, knowing that one we're chatting, we're talking about things, and having a good time by drinking and playing this game. And so my objective to win is not there. It's not like I'm gonna freaking win. Yeah, it's like oh, fucking okay. Like if I lose, I lose. Are we having a good time? Yeah, okay. Then uh, that's what I, that's what this is here for right now. In the realm of board games instead of table games, have you had a whole lot of experience in various board games? Uh, Risk and Axis and Allies are about the extent. Okay. And Monopoly. Have you, have you ever heard of something called Arkham Horror? No, but I'm about to look it up because that sounds pretty interesting. There's a few variants. I have acquired the card base box, which is a two-player affair, but it can be expanded pretty easily. And... The any time you throw in Arkham and you're referencing Lovecraft, you're gonna have some degree of Cthulhu ness. And the box on its own, and there's many expansions, gives you a stable of investigators to pick and choose with unique properties, skills, and weaknesses. Then you can assemble a deck from starting components and have them participate in an investigative adventure according to the scenarios provided in the box with certain parameters, you have to build the encounter deck. And then you, every turn, you will have a certain number of actions per player working towards a common objective, but as cooperatively or individually as you dare. And the outcome, which is really interesting to me, is that the scenario can have multiple outcomes. And there's an option to play in a campaign mode where the outcomes will stack, the decisions will progress through a series of events. And your character can have a sheet to track experience, injuries, items gained, items lost. So it becomes an RPG on top of being a survival horror experience. And make no mistake, it is a survival horror experience. Instead of dice, though, you roll with drawing tokens from a pouch or some other container where you can't see them, which have values on them in terms of modifying your actions. Which is similar to throwing dice and not dissimilar from uh, drawing cards for their stated effect. I very much quite enjoyed that notion. The game has interesting card art, good flavor text so far, and fairly compelling game flow. But the question becomes, 
is this game best played in pick, pick up, put down, sit down sessions? Or does it work well as a campaign? Because it has a narrative element, which means if you finish the campaign, replaying it only changes by maybe what deck components you have if you've done any upgrades or replacements, or if you have different investigators. So there's a perishability to the mystery, whatever it is. Sometimes there's a joy, like for you, for speedrunning Resident Evil games, you know what's coming. You just want to see how well you handle it when the time comes. As opposed to, uh, I don't know what this event is going to be, but I'm very curious to see what happens, how it turns out. And uh, on our first game, my wife and I, we, uh, we skated by to victory with the narrowest of margins. I believe it was the skin of my nuts that, that, that the phrase is. Or an RCH. I, I really much enjoyed it, but in a similar fashion, you can play that game with a high chance of loss, and that can still be fun. Or you would really want to get to the end and win, and then somebody fucks up, or everyone fucks up, and victory is snatched out of your hands. How chucks would you react to that? Um, I wouldn't be upset, but it, I understand it, because I played a game almost similar to that. Uh, Betrayal at House on the Hill. I own that one. I enjoyed it. I got I got captured at the end because of whatever the scenario we had, like aliens or something, because I tried throwing dynamite. It didn't work. And What, uh, really? Dynamite <laughs> works every time. Dynamite sours everything. Yeah, I, I threw it in the room, and then it. Uh, I was supposed to roll like a three or higher. I got a two. And so it didn't Fizzled work. Out. Like, Say what? Fizzled out. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And then, so I died. But at the end, we still won, but I didn't because I died. Um, and House on the Hill, you can track which haunts occur, but they're all different instances. So every session is a disconnected piece. I believe Widow's Walk, the expansion piece, can connect them together. But it's an adventure every time. You get to pick a character or fight over them if you want to. Uh, and the order in which the house is built is different. And what you find can be different. You can pick up the meta, but it's it's randomized enough that it's fun to see. Whereas within the scenario of uh, Arkham Horror, at least the base game, there's a specific progression order to the mystery. The house, such as it is in this scenario, gets built the same way each time. So as a brief overview, let's say three phases. Three phases you want and three phases you don't. So your investigators, between one and four, begin the scenario in a room which had a door that vanished. You're now trapped in a room and you have to find some way to get out. You have to find a solution. The longer you take, the more terrors and monsters appear for you to fight off. And if you succeed in the next phase, then you find a hatch in the floor to take you to a passage to a hallway. So the room goes away, but now there's a hallway, an attic, a cellar, and then a third place, the parlor, which you can't enter. So the play space has definitively changed from a single location to four locations. Whereas if you progress down the deck that you don't want to get worse, you go from creepy noises to basically monsters unburying themselves from the ground. So whatever your location happens to be, whatever phase you're in, it just gets worse there. Whereas with House on the Hill, you build out the house rooms based on a randomized draw and attach the rooms as you can, and the adventurers do what they can do, and then whatever layout is finished, or not finished even, when the haunting begins, that play space can be fortunately or unfortunately uh, arranged. And if you're experienced players, you kind of know which rooms to stack together, yada yada. But if you're just exploring around, 
it's it's an exciting element of what why is the kitchen next to the larder and next to the workshop next to the hole in the ground by the gardens like what the fuck who built us here stuff like that yeah so i get that but when you add continuity as in for example we we did a victory we did a win we chose one condition and i was designated as the lead investigator in arkham horror but now the character that i'm playing has a permanent debuff on one of his health stats for whatever next scenario we do. Meaning, yeah, we won, and I got weaker for it. As a house rule, we could ignore that, but the narrative is the manner in which you win, what happens, tracks you for good or ill for the following adventure. How does that make you feel? Makes me intrigued. I want to know what what would happen in that scenario i guess like i would be more intrigued on like did i do it right did i do it wrong so i don't know oh there's at least for the first scenario depending on how things branch out we did the right thing but it sure felt like it sucked ah see okay based on the overall outcome it's probably the best possible thing that could have happened did not feel that way to the character that I was controlling because I get to bear additional burdens. And whoever else is playing with us, I mean, they could have a better time. And if the character that you have, because you, you have the option to pull out, and it's not super clear if you keep any experience for the perpetual campaign or not, because you have the option to hack the system and say, you know what, fuck it, I'm playing with the best cards. That's not the intended experience, but if you want unlimited ammo to begin with, you can do that. You'll just be having a different time than what the creators anticipated the first time through. But if you play by the rules and the character that you have takes permanent damage and dies off, well then Darkest Dungeon style, you can get a replacement going, but he would have zero experience. So you're starting behind the curve from all the other survivors. Maybe more health, but you're not working with the same tool set. So it's this real teeter-totter of an experience where you might have to say, okay, time out, we're not doing this, we're not debuffing, we're doing whatever makes us feel best. Or you say, well, it's hard mode, baby, let's go. Hmm. But of course, since you like Resident Evil, you might really be into that. Like, yeah, yeah. tie both my hands behind my back. <laughs> I might, you know, you never know. I'll fight them with my swinging cot. Well, actually, you know, I might know if if you're ever in a position to play the game. Even if we get together at some point in a physical fashion, giggity, uh, we can see how that works. Because. You you have the right kind of chuckle fuck mentality to not always do the optimal thing, but to do the exciting thing. And I take note from that sometimes. Like, what well, what would Chucks do in this situation? You're right. Make the fire bigger. <laughs> but we're all gonna die. Yeah, but we'll get popcorn before we go. Exactly. That's how you have to work it sometimes, man. You can't. You so, can't. Um, mm-hmm. No, you can't. You can't just go out. You know, if you're making the fire bigger, you gotta. You got a day, um, have it, uh, how do I put this? You got to have something to entertain yourself as the fire gets bigger, so. Well, if, if it's a competitive game, then sometimes it has a lifespan. As I was uh, reminded that it is not polite to crash the train contract market just because I'm not going to win ticket to ride. <laughs> You get away with that once. After that, you're not invited back. Okay, fine. I'll do that. Like, okay. Like, damn. Uh, I, 
I also want to point out that the decks themselves are 30 cards strong, which is half a standard um, Magic the Gathering deck for tournament purposes. And the character that I chose has a background in law enforcement and had three different firearm cards in his deck, and I drew none of them. So my wife got multiple mechanics that were character-specific that triggered in very exciting ways, whereas I was stuck with an overweight researcher and a couple of flashlights. Which was, I mean, that was all right, but all the mechanics written for the character are be aggressive. When you dispatch monsters, you can get clues. So as a lesson for life, you can beat evidence out of whoever you find. Even if there's none to be found, they'll give you something. Well, it said, oh yeah, this agent's trusty 38 special. Yeah, can't wait to see this 38 special here. Well, the dungeon boss is upon you. What do you do? Uh, I stand my ground with a flashlight and do nothing. I point the flashlight oh. at him so everybody can see him so they can attack. That's fair, but it was already well lit. Well, don't you want to hit him? No, because he hits back if I miss, and he's good at hitting. Please, please help. I will keep him distracted, and I'll try to juke and dodge him while you find a fucking solution. It's good stuff. It's good tension, and depending on team dynamics, it can really go a couple different ways. Just remember, in a horror movie situation, always split the party. It's the best thing to do. Everybody will be fine. But just to be safe, don't get in the shower and get your tits out. Don't do that. Oh man, that sounds like no fun then. I mean, it's fun for a minute until the next scene happens, but we just we know how this goes. There's plenty of material to draw upon. Well, outside of board games, which are very exciting, but it's hard to get people on board to play them consistently. Uh, like, I really want to dive into Gloomhaven Jaws of the Lion, which is apparently one of the top-rated games of last year in its category as an expansion to Gloomhaven. I want to play it, but it's intimidating for a lot of folk. Um, outside of that, I'm back to Digital Delights. And again, watching things to discuss with you, uh, as far as things that are being played, I have to finish up with Metro Exodus, which is looking reasonably solid, just needs to be put through its paces to see if the story lands itself or not. And I hear there are multiple endings, but I'm not sure I'll pursue all of them. And also, I had grabbed a copy of This Guy I Complete, the first in the series, and I remember doing things like making fun a little bit of the next most recent release, which is the Sky 5. I know you and I looked at 6 as a preview um, up ahead in the distance somewhere with full CG models. I was being an old grognard saying, oh man, they did a thing where you could throw diagonally? Shit. Back in my day, we didn't have that. And now that I'm playing a faithful port of the first game mechanically, it just looks shiny. I think to myself, man, I... <laughs> I had a good fill of using the old exploit of wiggling directions back and forth to force the game into throwing a character in diagonal fashion. I'm okay with the skip. Give me the new mechanic. I have did my time. Let me have the new shit after I'm done with this. Hmm. And apparently, uh, the story itself is it's 20 years old. It's uh, super tropey from the PS2 days. In terms of, it's, it's perfect anime fodder because you're dealing with a Prince of the Netherworld, who is supposed to be this super powerful badass, but of course he's like a 12-year-old kid with a scarf and impressive hair antennae. Him and his vassal come across an angel fallen from heaven, who is supposed to be an assassin to kill off the demon lord, but she herself is like an 8-year-old girl. And the three of you um, 
team up together to go ask the, the angels in heaven as to why it is that they send an angel assassin. You venture across monster lands. You come across Flash Gordon, basically. You get him on your side. There's a human plot to take over the netherworld because the Earth is overpopulated for some reason, so you fight an evil general. And the Power Rangers, actually. Uh, and that all culminates in a battle against heaven itself. And Animu occurs. In, in chibi sprite fashion on a tactical grid using character levels. It's very convoluted, but I do enjoy the mechanical flow of this, these games. The first one, of course, is the stiffest because it was you know, the first one. But there's a lot to enjoy from the charm of unit positioning, super grinding, developing characters, going inside of weapons to make them stronger. That's a thing. Uh, and then I didn't realize that because this is a complete edition, they included the PSP port, which is play the story from your second character's perspective. Which would be okay, but apparently the fashion in which I unlocked that created a severe difficulty spike from that second campaign. So now more grinding is required to try and keep pace with these monsters. Which can be good or bad. Good because it means there's more game to play. Bad because it means if I hit a point where I don't want to grind anymore and just play a different game, then I will have to live with, well, you, you gave up. You hit a point of not fun anymore. You didn't want to grind any further, even though the game's all about that shit. And uh, that's it. That's done. And by grinding, in this case, it means find a level of a relevant, find a stage with relevant level and the fastest cycle. So if you can beat the stage in under a minute, that means you're going to be running under one minute cycles to make the character's number go up. So that if they go into whatever stage you're actually trying to beat, they don't get uh, one hit knocked out by any other grunt. Hmm. Oh, well, let's not forget that if you grind enough mana, which is a kill currency based on levels that you get, you can take the character and reincarnate them back to level one, and they keep a percentage of their stats from wherever they left off. It's, it's, it's convoluted, but basically, let's say you got a character at level 100, and their stats are good for you know, their normal self-existing, and then you roll them back with a certain percentage retained, let's say 95%, you now have a level one character with level 95 stats. And they will grow at a faster rate as they re-level. So you march them in somewhere and they say, oh, boo-hoo, I couldn't possibly do any damage. And the enemy swings and they whiff. And the character just punches them back casually with dealing four-digit damage. It's a lot of fun if you're in for the formula. I think it's poison to you, Chucks, but the Sky and I have been firm companions since about 2006. Maybe a little bit earlier, actually. So it is a franchise that I have a lot of affection for, even though I recognize its faults. And I'm still at the point where I enjoy the animations and the goofy uh, cartoon aesthetic. But hardcore fans just turn all, all the animations off. It's hard numbers. It's grinding. It's I want to. I bet you there's a way I can deal 10 billion damage with one hit. Well, here's me doing that. I made it. Now let's do 100 billion. The numbers get big, is what I'm saying. It sounds like it. I mean, that sounds a little ridiculous, but you know. Well, it is. It is peak ridiculous in terms of numbers porn, because it's not quite the same as running a factory sprawling across the face of Mars, but it is like saying uh, this <clears throat> this uh, basically scarecrow creature with a, with a switchblade, uh, it looks unassuming and all, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't touch it because its numbers are very intimidating. It has several million hit points. Uh, I wouldn't swing unless you could take it down in two hits. Shit. High quality dumb shit. 
And hey, kids, the Sky of Six is slated for when? It was already released January. Yeah? In Japan? Yep. Defiance O Destiny? Yep, January 28th, initial release date. Level uh, cap. On- Level cap is 9,999. Until? Uh, even further by raising it to 99,999,999. Yes. And then you reincarnate back to level one and you keep the stats and you get even stronger. Who needs to be that strong? Well, have we talked to you about the Darklands and our Lord and Savior Ball? No, we have This guy is a ridiculous franchise. It's worth checking out. I'm just not saying you might stick around. It's a highly specific flavor. Only on the Switch? Yeah, it makes sense. Is it only on the Switch? For now, yeah. Yeah. Oop, I bet. Didn't know that. Wasn't reading. No, no. Platform is PS4 and Nintendo Switch. In Japan for the PS4. Uh, it doesn't say I that still haven't seen it here, but I would like to. Because, I mean, all the banner art is all the characters stacked together. It's a riot of color. It's super cartoony. It's unnecessarily animo. But this is the kind of anime I can get behind because almost nobody's going Onichan. They're just completely self-aware and self-contained. And the story is nonsense and bonkers. And the localization team actually puts in good puns and good moments. So I respect what this thing does. And I celebrate its wackiness. Even as I realize all the cartoon shit goes away after you finish the campaign... Because now it's time to get serious in your numbers. You can probably finish even this newest one at level 120. That's a long way off from 10,000 or 100 million. So if at that point, you know whether you want to stick around or not. To uh, answer your question, it was released in America on the 29th of June. Really? Yep. I guess I got to hit up the store and see what's up. Yeah. And you, it says... Uh... Reading a brief synopsis, it's the first one. It meets Zed, a zombie that has that has risen above them all, except one, a god of destruction. Like, okay, that's about right. Yeah. Were you expecting a deep gripping tale or something? No. Because sometimes there is one in the middle. But if you can talk in tropes and you're not super converted, for example, there's there's a series called uh, Tales of Heroes, and then. Tales of Arcadia, and then there's there's Tales of Trails of Steel Across the Sky. Point being, there's like seven games in sequence, and the names get more absurd. I want to check them out at some point, but I also understand I'm up against a collective 200 hours of bad writing and a lot of flashy characters. But if the gameplay is solid, and little by little, it's worth it, right? Yeah. But at the same time, at some point, it's going to wear thin. So, again, as we talked about before, I have to research the best tactical point of insertion. And that might not be at the beginning. Somewhere in the middle. To say, give me a taste. See if I want to stick around. I can probably catch up on who these characters are and why they matter. But don't you see? This character embraced this hairstyle two games ago because their brother... I, I don't fucking care. That's not important. That, that's contrived storytelling for the sake of stick around to the next season. What do you have to show me as a package right here? Because you keep making these things. There's going to be Trails of Cold Steel 6. Okay, if it's good enough, like good old Dragon Quest style, what's up? They're not of even quality. They're not of escalating quality. There's ups and downs. What's a good one? Show me a good one. I will play that and decide 
where to put my time and money afterwards. Is that fair? I think it's fair. It is. Well, since we're getting pretty dry on my end, same here. With cost and such, I figure we should land this bitch. We definitely should, sir. So, guys, before we go, though, like I mentioned halfway into the podcast, uh, if you guys want to catch more of us or see us on other platforms, you can always follow us on YouTube, Spotify, Google Podcast, or anywhere else you get your podcast. Uh, we also have a Twitch channel where we occasionally stream video games. And if you guys want to see us play a certain video game or talk about certain topics while we're on there, just always hit us up and let us know. Um, on the YouTube, though, you get a video along with it. Uh, this week's video is Resident Evil 8 Village. It's from an old stream of mine, and you guys can poke fun of how crap I play the game. Uh, but for all that, hope you guys have enjoyed this episode of the Grimecast. I'm your host, as always, Nutchucks, and with me... Your co-host, Browbeat. Until next time, guys. We'll see you then. <laughs>